BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I am stoked about this weekend's sporting lineup. We'll talk about it all throughout the radio show today, but I am fired up to see. Oregon play UCLA. I'm fired up to see Oregon State at home against Colorado. I'm excited about the NFL action. Niners made a big trade. What's Christian McCaffrey going to look like in a Niners uniform? Well, you already know. How about this weekend's college football landscape in general? It'll be great. There'll be a lot of buildup. We're going to talk about it on today's show. We'll talk about the Big 12 and the Pac-12. Are they at odds? Why can't they just be friends? We'll also talk with Reese Davis, host of College Game Day on ESPN. He'll be with us uh, in just a few minutes to talk about Saturday's festivities, a lot of hoopla. I got to tell you a funny story, though, before we get to Reese Davis. Uh, I went looking in my email inbox because the PR person for ESPN has been emailing me since last Saturday trying to tell me that, uh, you know, they want to get Reese Davis on the show or, you know, they want to promote game day, all that. Of course, that's cool, and we're all for that because I'd love to talk to Reese Davis. But I uh, I went into my email inbox, and during the course of the week, I you know, I get a high volume of email from readers, from listeners, from casual observers. I get junk mail. I get – my email inbox probably looks a lot like yours. But I uh, I went to look for – the email from the PR person for ESPN who was setting up the interview with Reese Davis. And so I, uh, I put in the search line, I put Reese Davis. And lo and behold, what popped up was an email from Reese Davis. He wrote me an email. And I thought to myself, gosh, I missed this email from Reese Davis. Well, it turns out that Reese Davis emailed me. I want to get the date here right. Reese Davis <laughs> emailed me. November 28th, 2008. Reese Davis emailed me 14 years ago. And he, he wrote to me after reading a column I wrote about Oregon State, uh, former Oregon State player Bob Jeremiah. Bob Jeremiah uh, played football at Oregon State, and Bob Jeremiah, after one of the big football games at Oregon State, gave his helmet to somebody, to a, to a little kid. And Bob Jeremiah went off and fought in Vietnam and went off and lived a life and had kids and whatnot. And I came into contact with the little kid who had Bob Jeremiah's helmet like 14, 15 years ago. And I wrote a column about returning the helmet to Bob Jeremiah's family. And, you know, this, the journey that the helmet had been on, and it was a little bit football, it was a little bit American history and all of that. But I wrote this column about Bob Jeremiah's helmet, and apparently Reese Davis read it and wrote me an email that I missed on November 28th, 2008 at 11.54 in the morning. I'm looking at it right now. He wrote, John, I just wanted to compliment you on that great piece you wrote about Bob Jeremiah's helmet. Unbelievably moving. All the best, Reese Davis, ESPN. Well, apparently I didn't write it back. I didn't write Reese Davis back until this morning. I wrote Reese and I said, just catching up on my email from 2008. Um, and I told him, hey, I'm working with the PR team trying to get you on the show. We'll talk to Reese Davis coming up. Uh, I don't know what he's going to think about me blowing his email off for 14 years until I was ready to have him on the show and then suddenly answering it. I guess it's all about me sometimes on the show. But I think in the end, 
uh, if you are a college football fan, you know the game day atmosphere. You know that what ESPN and game day have done to cultivate and create what is a beautiful marketing arm of their enterprise that gets you watching whatever it is that is going on on Saturday morning, wherever the football games may be. And again, uh, this game with Oregon and UCLA will be on Fox at 1230, but it'll be ESPN that steals the thunder in the morning in the run-up to the game. And I think it's brilliant what they're doing. It's, uh, it's magnificent that they have fans all around the country clamoring to get them to their university. And it comes with a badge of honor. I mean, literally, sometimes when you go and you, you know, try to reference great games in the history of, a, of a, a, one team or another, what you find is, in parentheses, oh, that was the day that game day came. And I don't buy into it as much as maybe fans do. Like, I see it as kind of the shoulder programming sideshow. But I have to admit that I sort of admire what ESPN has done with Game Day and the fact that they have made an enterprise out of this and created this, uh, this self-sustaining marketing arm that no doubt prints money because of all the sponsorships that are in and the commercials that they sell. And frankly, they don't even need to be carrying the game like they are in this Oregon-UCLA contest. Like, you know, they'll be on the scene. They'll be uh, setting up all of the action for college football all day long Saturday. But in the backdrop, Oregon and UCLA will then take the field on Fox, one of their rivals, and play the football game. So I just think it's a great little thing that ESPN has come up with, and others have tried to duplicate it. They can't. I'll ask Reese Davis about it. Like, what makes it special? What makes it different? Maybe you are going to go to this broadcast. Uh, if uh, if you're going to be there, maybe you're going to bring a sign. Maybe you're just going to be there in the sea of people, the throng of people, trying to uh, you know support and show what the state is about. On that note, I am a little disappointed with Mother Nature. Think about this. Every time we have a big-time sporting event that captures a piece of the country and will bring broadcast eyeballs and and viewers from around the country into our state, it seems as though we get bad weather. I don't know if you have noticed this, but I noticed with the LPGA event, I noticed it again with this event. Like, if this game had been held last weekend, what a wonderful testament to the great weather in the state of Oregon. We would have been able to be like, oh, it's 70-something degrees, it's sunny, look at the landscape, this is a beautiful sunny day in Oregon, and instead, what are we going to get? The whole country is going to tune in on Saturday to see Autzen Stadium. They're going to see a great football game on Fox. But all morning long, what they're going to see is the drizzle and the backdrop and gray skies. And they're going to see that at the football game, too. And I, am I wrong for wanting us to have good weather so that we can, you know, put forth a uh, shiny, positive, smiling face for all the people around the country that think our state's on fire or downtown Portland is burning. And now, you know, this was it. This was a great opportunity. And I thought, oh, let me check the weather. And then I went, oh, it's going to be rainy. It's going to be cold. And the uh, the postcard that we are going to send to everybody else around the country is going to be, hey, the Oregon's really cool and it's really pretty and they play some football there. But, man, it's kind of miserable this time of year with the bad weather. Uh, we got a great show ahead. As I mentioned, Reese Davis will be joining us in the 3 o'clock hour. In the 4 o'clock hour, we're going to go to the Schwartz, Jeff Schwartz, 
former Oregon offensive lineman, guy who played eight seasons in the NFL. He works at Fox. He works at Sirius XM. He does a great job uh, now sort of breaking down you know, college football and the NFL on a week-to-week basis. But I think he has a unique perspective in that he cares deeply about the Pac-12. He cares deeply about the University of Oregon. So we'll get Jeff Schwartz on the show to talk about that. Four o'clock, you should be here for that. In the five o'clock hour, uh, Oregon State is hosting Colorado on Saturday. That is a big football game, especially for the Beavers. But Colorado seems to be playing with some new life. Mike Sanford is the coach at Colorado. He's got some experience He's the interim coach there now, but he's got some experience in the Pac-12. He was an assistant for Jim Harbaugh at Stanford. He was an assistant for David Shaw. He's worked at Colorado. He's worked at Minnesota. He played his college ball at Boise State. He, his father coached at USC as an assistant coach and uh, later in some other places uh, around college football. So he grew up as a you know the son of a coach in uh, you know changing and moving. And uh, We'll talk to Mike Sanford uh, in the 5 o'clock hour about what Colorado is preparing to do as they uh, head to Corvallis uh, and are on a travel day. So it was unusual to get Sanford on a travel day as the team is moving. But I also think, you know, I think that Colorado wants to matter. Like Colorado has had a dismal start to their season. They are now 1-0 under the interim coach. But they've had a dismal start to their season And, you know, the lucky part, I guess, or the fortunate part, I won't call it luck, but the fortunate part for Colorado is that conference play started, you know, just before they fired Carl Durrell. And so it's not like they're sitting in the worst possible position with nothing to play for. Like if for some reason Colorado could turn it around, and I'd bet against it, uh, that, you know, at least they have that opportunity now. And I think Mike Sanford is selling that. They're one and two in conference play, and they got a win last week over Cal. Uh, they get a chance to go to Oregon State on Saturday, and Oregon State is a 24-point favorite. Better show up to play. Uh, so we'll talk to Mike Sanford coming up in uh, hour number three, the happy hour on today's show. We'll also give what's your peeve an opportunity. I don't want you taking all your all your baggage to the weekend. So if you've got a peeve on your mind, uh, we'll do that in the 4 o'clock hour. And in the 5 o'clock hour, I will tell you what you should be watching, what's on tap for the weekend when it comes to your viewership and, and what is happening. Back in studio, Peter Sampson, Stephen. Uh, guys, we've got a great show today. Are, are you excited about the weekend? And am I right about the weather, or, or does the weather not matter? Do we want to keep visitors away by showing them that it's gray and drizzly? Personally, man, I am good with the rain. It's like a month overdue. But, yeah, I'm I'm hyped for the weekend. I'm hyped for the big game uh, down in Eugene. I'm going to be holed up. It's going to be cozy inside, looking at the rain just hit against the window while I'm watching some college football. This is what October is for. Yeah, I don't want to complain about the rain. I prefer the sun, but, you know, it's good to have the rain back. It feels more like football season now with the rain coming back, basketball season coming back. So I'm down with that. Uh, Yeah, I I agree with you. You know, less people around here. We don't need more new people. You know, (laughs) let's keep it what we got. You want fewer people around. Reese Davis is coming up next, ESPN College Game Day host. He'll be with us. Uh, I want you to leave it locked in. You got the bald-faced truth statewide. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. So I was searching through my email earlier today before the show. I had just written a column, and I was looking for 
to find out what was going on with Reese Davis. Is he coming on the show? So I searched in the subject line, Reese Davis, and up popped an email that Reese Davis wrote me in November of 2008, 14 years ago. Apparently, Reese Davis wrote a column I wrote about Bob Jeremiah, a former Oregon State football player, and the journey of his helmet. And Reese sent a kind note to me, and I finally answered him today, 14 years later, and I'm bringing him on. Reese, I am so sorry I didn't write you back. <laughs> you know what? The thing is, is when I saw that email, uh, I'm sure it was an excellent uh, piece of prose that you put forth. <laughs> I can't remember the story now when I saw it because I didn't really reference in detail yeah. about the story. So refresh, just for my own edification and to make me feel like I'm not too old, <laughs> refresh my memory about the story that I that I liked. Bob, G- Bob Jeremiah was a football player at Oregon State. They beat the giant killers. They beat, you know, USC and O.J. Simpson. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he gave his helmet away after the game to a kid. And then Bob Jeremiah went off to Vietnam and lived a life and had kids. And years later, this helmet had passed through several people. And I just sort of followed the helmet's journey. And it finally was given back to Bob Jeremiah's family as a gift. And I, I wrote it on Thanksgiving Day in 2008. The journey of this helmet, and Reese Davis must have read it, and he wrote me a nice note about it. So thank you. I do recall the story now that you said that, but I'm not sure that I would have I would have ever been able to pull it just uh, just <laughs> thinking about it. You know, there have been there have been a lot of things, and and all of these newspapers now that I used to really enjoy reading the articles of the local beat writers. Now you got to pay, and yeah. you say, okay, well it's only a dollar for six months. Well, if you, I mean, it's like seven thousand subscriptions you know at some point yeah. i've finally I've, I've quit all of that but we digress anyway. well so. i gotta tell you i'm writing now you can get a free subscription to johnconzano.com i'm still writing there and <laughs> i'll send you a link to it all right let's talk right. about let's talk about your journey here um you know i'm bummed that you're getting bad weather because like a week ago it was beautiful and sunny now you're coming in and the whole country's going to think it just pours rain here all the time and I don't know this is good for our brand, but you get a chance to go around the country with the game day crew and hosting that. What's that like to you for you to parachute in and get a flavor of college football in a bunch of different places? Well, I think it's really what makes the show special, and we, we really attempt to cover the entire landscape of the sport. And I always say that we try to go where the best story is every week and not necessarily where the place is where the two teams have the lowest numbers beside them in terms of their rankings. And being able to come here uh, with with what Chip has been able to do at the start of the season with UCLA and Oregon's nice bounce back after the opening loss to Georgia is a cool opportunity. You know, Dillingham. And, uh, you know, Kenny said that he blamed us for the bad weather. He said it hasn't rained once since I lived here. And now you guys come and it's going to rain all weekend. So. <laughs> The, the first, you know, my grandma would say, you know, you get one chance to make a first impression. That Georgia game for Oregon was not a good first impression. Is this a chance for Oregon to get that taste out of the mouth and you know reintroduce themselves to people? Maybe it is for the, you know, for them personally and for their pursuit of the Pac-12. Uh, but, John, I'm not going to be disingenuous. I think that is such an albatross that anything larger than winning the Pac-12 championship is beyond their reach. Um, and that look, that's a that's a worthy goal and quite an accomplishment if they're able to do that. But I think that in this era of only four teams making the playoff, you can lose. That's been proven, but you can't lose like that. And I I advocated in 2016 when Penn State won the Big Ten, 
but had two losses, one of which was a 39-point blowout at the hands of Michigan that they did not belong, and argued the same in 2017 when Ohio State, despite being Big uh, Big Ten champions, had a 31-point loss to a mediocre Iowa team. I don't think you're going to lose that way and make a 14 playoff absent maybe every other team you're competing with for that fourth spot having a similar type of smudge on the resume. So I'm not going to sit here and go, yeah, they can get back in it and erase all of the, you know, the, the bad visions that people have from them playing Georgia. I think they can help their own confidence. I, obviously, it puts them in great position for the conference race. And maybe you know they would just have to hope that everybody else had a major shovel-to-the-face moment that would put everyone on equal footing. And then maybe some, you know, being a long way removed from that loss would help them in the long run. But realistically, I think that uh, I think that's uh, that's probably too heavy a weight to carry uh, to hope for anything more than a Pac-12 championship. Which, when I say that, I don't mean to diminish that. That is that's a major accomplishment to be able to do that and and go to the Rose Bowl. The ecosystem of college athletics has been on my mind as I watch the Big Ten deal and USC and UCLA defecting and Texas and. Uh, you know, going to the to the SEC and, you know, Texas and Oklahoma. But, you know, the health of the ecosystem, Reese, like you're in that business. This is, you know, in your wheelhouse. How do you see sort of the health of the college game? Are you at all concerned with what you're seeing? It, it's a tough question to answer because I don't think anything is going to really crush the health of college football. But I do think that we're losing some of the character. Um, I worry about the sport becoming homogenized because almost by definition, when you're in a conference with a certain group of teams, um, unless you're at some type of competitive disadvantage, maybe like, uh, you know, like a Georgia Tech back in the day and you choose to run option in order to be competitive, uh, basically you start playing the same way. And one of the, one of the appealing factors of college football over the years is there's been a little bit of a, a distinct characteristic depending on what conference you played in. And then there was that uh, that inherent argument about which way's better, which one's more difficult to defend, which one in a particular year is going to carry the day and win a championship. And, you know, all of those things I think are good for the health of the sport. And we're going to lose some of that because everybody's going to be a little bit homogenized. Um, I also worry about um, – I worry about the loss of the be-all, end-all regular season game. And I accept the argument that more games will be will matter, but I also think it's true that the big games will matter less, uh, meaning that you're not going to have the winner-take-all stakes that you find from time to time in the regular season in college football, a characteristic that you find in no other sport. And, you know, so there's a trade-off is what I'm saying. It may be time to pay that price. It may be time to expand the playoff and, and give up some of those mammoth October games that might resonate uh, and determine a team's fate. Or in Oregon's case, uh, a game early in the season, which because of the way it went, weighs the rest of the season. And if you're an Oregon fan in that particular instance, you look at that and you go, well, that's good. I, I, I don't want that to weigh on me. But at the same time, if you are involved in one of those giant November games, winner-take-all feel, there's an appeal to that, and I think there's a value to that, and we're, we're, we're going to lose some of that. And for that part of it, I'm, I'm concerned about it. As far, you know, and I don't mean to ramble on, but as far as the conference affiliation, um, you know, we're headed toward uh, a split, I think, eventually, 
where the major football-playing institutions and the conferences affiliated with them are going to govern themselves. And, you know, and you're not looking at 131 teams that will be involved in that. I would say it would probably be something a little over half of that, you know, probably in the 70s, maybe around 80 teams that would, uh, that would be involved, and they'll, they'll set their own structure. I would imagine there would be revenue sharing involved in some, in some fashion and all of the things that are going to sort of change – change the way college football feels. I think it'll still be popular. I know I'll still love it with every fiber of my being, but it'll be different. Reese Davis, host College Game Day, is our guest. Let's go back to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, on the, uh, <laughs> along the Tennessee River. We find a young Reese Davis hanging out with friends or maybe playing sports. Uh, like, Did you think, you know, one day I want to be at something like ESPN, or what, what were your aspirations before going to Alabama? Well, I... Um, I, I did want to do this. Now, I always thought it would come at the end of a long and illustrious playing career, and that didn't exactly happen, nor did it come close to happening. But, uh, you know, I've always loved this, and I always loved, um, I always loved the broadcasting of the, of the events, too, because, you know, it wasn't to me just playing, which I love, and I played football and basketball, you know, through high school. But uh, it was also, you know, a kid, a little kid, Back before every game was on television, I would be lying on the floor in my bedroom, spinning the radio dial, trying to pick up the next college football game on Saturday night. And I've always had a deep affection for it, and, and it's what I wanted to do. Now, plenty of people uh, over the years, you know, when you were first starting, say it was crazy, you know, to aspire to be an ESP. And you know, I've been blessed and fortunate that it's that it's worked out for me, and the family supported me and allowed me to pursue this. And um, you know, I'm I'm very grateful for the opportunity. You know, the the crew that you work with, you got a bunch of talented people. You know, how do you sort of you know you, that's an orchestra that you've got to play as a host on that. How do you navigate that in the role that you have and get everybody involved? And you know, for those of us who just see the broadcast. Uh, how is that working for you on game day, and, and what do you see your role as? I think the role of what I have to do it well, and I don't, and I don't someone else has to judge that I do it well. That gets the determine that. I pursue and attempt to do it well. I think a good host is a conversation with those uh, her, her own judgment of the situation, knows when to push back, knows how to push back in a way, even if you might agree with the point that, that someone on the set is making, push back in a way that's not disingenuous, that assigns you to a position you don't believe, but yeah. does say, well, what about this perspective? So I think, I think we are, uh, we're having trouble with Reeve Davis's phone. Uh, we'll try to grab him back here. Let's take a quick break, and we'll have more with Reese Davis coming up. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. All right, we've got Reese Davis back, ESPN's College Game Day. I won't keep you long, Reese, but, you know, just the idea, you know, you've got Corso, you've got, you know, other personalities, you've got a guest picker. You're, what's your role in this, and how do you sort of orchestrate that? I think the first thing is you have to build trust with everybody on the set, and a lot of that comes with things that happen off the air so that they know uh, that you're invested, that you're prepared, and that you have their best interest at heart. 
that's the first thing. And then I think picking your spots, uh, being able to interject your judgment of a situation when appropriate, knowing when to push back, all those things I think uh, help aid the chemistry of something like that. I think back to uh, something Bob Knight said to me at one at one point. He looked at me once and he goes, and I worked with Bob uh, calling basketball games for a number of years. He said, you know, you're like John Buck. And I thought, who, does, who is he talking about? Is he talking about Joe Buck? Is he talking about Jack Buck? And I said, who, who's John Buck? He said, well, when I was a boy, he said, John Buck was a famous lion tamer. And he had a whip and a chair, and he kept the lions at bay. He said, that's kind of what you do. <laughs> so I think there's probably a bit, of a, a bit of that element to it as well. 1998, 1999, I covered Indiana basketball as a beat reporter, and I got to cover him, and I loved it. It was never boring. I didn't agree with everything he did, but it was never boring. What was it like to work with Knight? He, he was great, and I've been close to him. It's one of those things where when you develop a relationship with someone, it doesn't mean that you agree with everything that they've done or everything that they've said and that you're always in, in lockstep with them, but I know a different side of him from the public persona. I've seen him be extraordinarily generous and kind and and considerate of other people who could do nothing for him. And there aren't there you know, that is a mark of character too. And all of us, you know, don't want to be judged by our worst moments. And I know there are a number of things that uh, Bob has done over the years that's controversial, some that aren't controversial, some that just weren't the right thing to do. And, you know, there's, there's nobody questions that. But I think there's another side that gets ignored that he has, he has meant a lot to a lot of people. And he's, he's always been good to me, uh, very, uh, you know, very loyal to me. And because of that, you know, I, I, try, to, I try to always be fair and loyal to him uh, in, in that same way. That doesn't mean he's perfect. doesn't mean I condone everything he's ever said or done or anything of that nature. But during his time with us, uh, at ESPN, he was he was a great coworker, a great teammate, and uh, and and actually fun to be around, and had had great stories. And he and he gave me something that I use almost uh, on my podcast uh, every week. He, he'd always tell me, you know, my boy, dumb loses more than smart wins. He said, you know, all, all these coaches try to outsmart somebody. He said, but usually, he said somebody does something dumb, and you'll lose the game. Dumb loses more than smart wins. All right, before I cut you loose, Chip Kelly's return. you got a bunch of storylines here. Dan Lanning, Kelly, both having two weeks to prepare. What do you expect, Oregon, UCLA, at Autzen Stadium? Uh, I think you're going to have a, a high-powered offensive game, both teams determined to run the ball. I think it'll be a lot more physical than people who haven't watched these programs week in and week out, as your listeners have, might realize. These are two, uh, two really physical, tough football teams want to establish themselves on the ground, and I think it's going to be a really entertaining game tomorrow in Austin. All right. You stay safe. Stay dry. I'll see you at the stadium. Reese, thanks for making time. Sounds good. You bet. All right. See there you he is. Bye-bye. All right. Reese Davis finally got him on the show. We kept him on the show. Nice job, Peter, getting him back on. Um, I want takeaways on that. Uh, Steven, let's kick this around. Peter, let's kick this around. Uh, he says – Oregon cannot overcome the 49-3. I'm not ready to go there. Like, I think there's a lot of ball left to play. I think Oregon needs to make another first impression. That's the task of Dan Lanning. It's not just winning this game and winning out. You've got to continue to make new impressions on the committee and on people and make them forget or maybe 
excuse the week one performance. Yeah, I agree with you. I disagree with Reese. I think if Oregon can beat UCLA and get to that Pac-12 title game with only one loss, that's running the table in the Pac-12, which hasn't happened since Oregon did it. But if they can do that, they're going to get that win um, against UCLA. Oregon State, maybe they go on a run. That's going to be a good win at Oregon State. And then it'll probably be USC in the Pac-12 title game. And I think that's the big win that you have to get. That's going to get nationally respected. Like I think this win against UCLA, if they get it, will be respected. But it's the USC one at the end of the year. If they face off in USC in the Pac-12 title game, I think that could bump them up to the CFP, obviously depending on what else happens in the nation. But I don't think they're out of it. I think right now Oregon, you know, they've proven that that week one was kind of a one-off uh, with you know weird situation, new coach, great Georgia team. So I think Oregon can make another uh, second impression, as you'd say. I think it's about winning with style, too, isn't it? I mean, you can run the table, and it'll be the typical, oh, yeah, well, outside of UCLA, USC, how great really is the Pac-12? Utah maybe you know didn't get off to the start we expected. But if you do it with style, let's say, and I'm not necessarily expecting this, but let's say you beat UCLA this weekend by 17, you run the table, you do, like you said, you handle USC in the Pac-12 title game. You have to consider Oregon. You have to. You don't want to get in a situation where Georgia is the SEC, you know, regular season. They get to the championship game, or maybe they lose to Alabama, and you've got a one-loss Georgia and a one-loss Alabama sitting at the end of the rainbow. That's not tough for the selection committee. It makes it very easy to put both Alabama and Georgia into the playoff and go, okay, there's no room for Oregon. They already got boat raced by Georgia. I think, um, you know... I, agree. I know what he's saying, and here's, what, here's why my heart sunk when he said it, because we all know the platform that game day has in the eyes of America, in the eyes of the top 25 voters, in the eyes of the selection committee even, even the, if no one will admit it, the problem that for Oregon is just what Reese Davis said. You know, that's such an albatross. I don't think they can overcome it. People won't, you know, they're going to remember week one. That's all they're going to remember, unfortunately. That's a real problem for Oregon. And, you know, I, I cringe a little bit at the idea, and I've heard people say this, that, you know, USC could lose to Utah and still make the playoff. UCLA could lose to Oregon this weekend when with one loss against Oregon, still get to the playoff. You know, and it's almost like people are blind to the idea that, hey, wait a minute, why can't Oregon get there with a loss to Georgia? Well, they say, well, because we saw them play Georgia, and they, they did not belong in the same field as Georgia, and that's true in week one. And, but I also think, like, how could you put UCLA in the playoff with one loss if the loss is to Oregon? You're saying Oregon's not worthy, Oregon beat UCLA, but we'll still take UCLA? It makes no sense to me. So I do think we need to expand to 12 because right away, uh, you know, I'm, I'm worried about, like, hey, the perception of the Pac-12 conference is tainted by this. You know, and if you're a diehard Pac-12 fan, maybe the easiest solution is that Oregon isn't the conference champion, like you know, and, and that USC or UCLA end up there. But I, I just think if you're Oregon, you got to win these games, and you have to make statements along the way. And I think there has to be some talking afterwards. That's why I keep saying, like, if Oregon wins this game against UCLA, Dan Lanning after the game has to have some bullet points where he goes. We're a different team than week one. We are busy putting week one further and further into the rearview mirror. We are overcoming it. Gosh, we're so much better on offense. We're so much better in defense. He has to start selling because there, there is an element here 
of getting to the four-team invitational tournament that is all about selling. has nothing to do with what, really what's happening on the field. There's a lot of deserving teams that you could say, hey, these six or eight teams all could have an argument to be included in the playoff. But they just take the four best, and usually it's one or two SEC teams, and then you know it comes in, and then it's uh, you know who who's the Big Ten champion, and then maybe there's one spot left over for the Big Twelve and the Pac twelve that to to sort of fight over. And so I really do hope that the committee keeps an open mind, and I really am going to be looking tomorrow for signs that Oregon really has taken those steps forward. Because if they haven't, there's no point in getting to the playoff and getting your teeth kicked in. And I sort of suspect George is just that good. But, I, you know, it remains to be seen. A lot of things happen between week one and week 12 of a college football season. So, John, if you're a Duck fan, are you rooting for Georgia to run the table? That way Tennessee yes. will have a loss, Alabama will have two losses. But at the same time, will the committee maybe put a rematch of Oregon-Georgia since we've already seen that? I would want to see, I think if I'm on the committee, what I really want to see is I want to see Georgia embarrass somebody else in the SEC. I want to see Georgia embarrass Tennessee. I want to see Georgia embarrass Alabama, not have Georgia emerge as a cloudy SEC champion or maybe not even the SEC champion. Let's say they get beat in the championship game by somebody. You don't want that if you're on the committee and you're wanting to put Oregon into the playoff. You want to see Georgia embarrass some other people and run the table, and maybe in your mind you're going, look, Everybody, nobody's as good as Georgia. Everybody would have been embarrassed by them in Atlanta on week one. You know, but Oregon's narrative is, it's an easy narrative. Like, look, you know, I'm sure the people at Nike and Oregon's marketing people are sitting around going, hey, look, here's what we got to do. You know, if we end up at the end of the rainbow 12-1, and one, we have to sell the idea, sell the committee on the idea that this Oregon team is different than the team that suited up in week one at Georgia, got ambushed. You have to sell that. I want your phone calls. What would you think of what Reese Davis said? 503-417-7575. You weigh in. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Jeff Schwartz, Fox Sports, Sirius XM host. Former Oregon Ducks offensive lineman will join us at 4 o'clock. In the 5 o'clock hour, Mike Sanford, Colorado's head coach, will be with us at about 5.15 to talk about Colorado and Oregon State and uh, their game uh, coming up on Saturday evening at Reeser Stadium. Uh, We had Reese Davis from ESPN uh, College Game Day on the show. Uh, I am not a huge viewer of the game day experience. I know it exists. I've watched it. I'm just not, you know, I'm... I try to not get too much in my head from other people, especially on game day. Like, I don't like to have deep conversations about who's going to win or who's better on game day on press row. I'd rather keep it light because I want to I have my own opinion and have my own viewpoint. And so I don't really tune in to game day. And if I do, sometimes I do it without the volume on. And I kind of watch the show of it in the background. But I'm not a diehard viewer. But I think it's beautiful what they've done because they have created this marketing arm for ESPN. And as much as like Reese Davis is saying, look, I don't want my opinion. I don't want to speak for this or that. I, as he's talking on our show, he, I'm, I'm well aware that like what he says on ESPN tomorrow as part of that game day broadcast is huge. 
Like it's it's hugely influential with people across the country and the selection committee and whatnot. I want your phone calls. What did you make of what Reese Davis said? Essentially pointed out that the forty nine to three loss by Oregon in week one of the season to Georgia is too much for Oregon to overcome. He called it an albatross, and he basically said that it is going to be too much for them to overcome. What did you make of that? I want your phone calls on it. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Uh, Let's go to the phone lines and uh, get your takes on that. Mark is in Portland. Mark, welcome to the conversation. Hey, yeah, that first game against Georgia is perfect for their fantasy world, isn't it? I mean, how ridiculous is that? The first game of the year is irrelevant in football. It's it's what you do during the course of the year and how you improve each week. And the, it should be irrelevant. It should be one loss. And I got the question I was going to ask, John, is because I haven't really looked, but is, is it possible for Tennessee, Alabama, and Georgia all to end up with one loss? Because what a nightmare that would be. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's just – the whole thing drives me nuts because they've robbed us, us of a century of a real postseason in college football. It's, it's, it's the only sport, female or male, team sport where they don't settle it on the field, where the Pac-10 or Pac-12 champion can't control their own destiny. So whoever wins the Pac-12 this year, like every year, should control their own destiny. Until they do that, it's a fantasy playoff. I mean, it's always going to be that way to me. It just yeah. it, it drives me nuts listening to the legitimacy because we, who cares what the power rankings in the NFL are each week? We know it's going to be settled on the field. It's just so dumb, their fantasy world. And they, the elites continue to control college football and rob us of a true postseason. It just angers me. It really does. Cause it's, yeah, and there is a way that, you know, Tennessee and Georgia will play on November 5th. And then, you know, let's just say Georgia beats Tennessee – and then Georgia gets to the SEC title game, and they would, you know, presumably encounter Alabama, or the winner of, you know, obviously, uh, you know, Tennessee could get another, or Alabama Tennessee could get a rematch, uh, you know, because they're not in the same division. But um, yeah, there's a chance they all could. There's also a chance that the SEC is going to sit there with, you know, Ole Miss and Alabama and Tennessee and Georgia and be like, hey, we should just have four teams in this playoff and make it a full-blown farce. And that's part of the problem. Like, look, I stopped calling this four-team thing a playoff in print and, and frankly, in on the show with, with any kind of authority. It's an invitational tournament. It's not a playoff. You don't, you, know, you don't have automatic berths. So you have a selection committee that invites four teams to play, and then they play off. And so I do think you got a problem if you are a purist and you got a problem if there's a bunch of, you know, subjective viewpoints on who belongs and who doesn't belong. And in a lot of years, it is apparent, like, who the best two or three or four teams are. But this is one of those years where I think you could have a Pac-12 champion with one loss, and you could have multiple SEC teams with one loss, and you could have, you know, a Big Ten champion, and you even have somebody from the Big 12, and all of a sudden you got, like, you got a problem here. you got about five or six teams that everybody wants to see play. Let's go to Josh, who's in Vancouver. Josh, welcome to the show. John, it's Friday, my man. It's been a great week. Super appreciate you. I'm going to continue to say it every time you're willing to host a phone call from me. Uh, but, hey, man, listen, I, the, the more I start to sit here and think about it, 
listen, it doesn't bother me what Reese Davis had to say. In the grand scheme of things, right now, right now, today, Oregon hasn't played UCLA. Oregon hasn't run the table the rest of the way. They haven't gone on and won a Pac-12 title. Right now, the Georgia game is an albatross. It absolutely is. Like you can't. Like I'm. Nobody's a bigger Oregon honk than I am. And but I have no problem, and I'm not uncomfortable with anybody saying that it's an albatross right now. There's a ton of football to be played the rest of the way. And there's a couple things that we have seen from the college football playoff committee that historically happen. And the, the big thing that jumps out to me is this. Is if Oregon runs the table, they get to the end of the season, they win the, they win the conference title, uh, they don't lose any more games. One thing that the college football playoff committee has shown over and over and over again is that they are not willing to overlook conference championships. And if Oregon gets to the end of the season and they have an 11-game winning streak, 12 with a conference title and a conference title in their pocket, I feel pretty confident that they're going to be one of the top three or four teams because there's so much other football to happen and there are so many other matchups that are going to dissuade that. It's going to be hard to put a one-loss or two-loss non-conference winning SEC team in ahead of a conference champion winner. So, yeah, right now it's fine to say it's an albatross, but it's pretty early to say that as we get further into the year, that's going to be the way that it is towards the end of the season. Thanks, John. Have a good weekend, brother. Enjoy the game this weekend, and best to you and your family. Yeah, I appreciate the phone call. I, I think, you know, we, we talk about it all the time, only one chance to make a first impression. It's why playing that game against Georgia to me, it's, you know, I understand why Oregon did it. They made $4.5 million to go and play that game. And it was an opportunity for Oregon to show they belonged. And Mario Cristobal wanted to play that game. But Dan Lanning inherited that game. And then in his debut act, he got punched in the nose by Kirby Smart. And Georgia just blew Oregon out of the building. Like, it was over. Like, knockout. It was, it was like a Mike Tyson fight back in the day. And a lot of buildup, a weigh-in, a whole bunch of hoopla. You know, the introductions, you know, everybody had their walk-up song, and then all of a sudden somebody got knocked out in 34 seconds. Like, that's how it felt in the building. And at the time I went, wow, is this Oregon going, is this going to be like a seven-win season for Dan Lanning in, in year one? Like, you, you just didn't know what to make of it. And so now I'm looking back going, okay, are they going to regret? Is Oregon going to regret playing that game? Should they have done what UCLA did like UCLA replaced Michigan on the schedule Michigan backed out and you know they played South Alabama and Bowling Green and Chip Kelly essentially turned that into like an NFL preseason you know he just kind of played his guys half the time and they won the games and they got out and they got lucky you know one game they they win by a point at home and they never had to leave the Rose Bowl and like Oregon could have done that but instead Oregon opted to jump in there against the defending national champions in what amounted to a road game. So I kind of hope that the selection committee, if Oregon is sitting at the end at 12-1 and with decisive wins over UCLA and Utah and USC, plenty of ball left to play for Oregon, um, if they're sitting in that position, I hope the committee not only recognizes, hey, that's a conference champion, but also goes, look, do we really want to penalize a... Power 5 conference team for scheduling big and playing another credible, viable contender in week one. Because if you start doing that and you're the committee, what you're really saying to the rest of college football is, hey, don't schedule that way. Don't do that because we'll never forget it. 
And so I do think that's in play here. And I and look, I respect Reese Davis. I I cringed because I thought, oh oh, you know, the selection committee is going to hear that over and over again over the next five or six weeks. Will they be able to get it out of their heads? And for people who missed it, I asked Reese Davis if Oregon can overcome the blowout in week one. And, you know, he essentially just said, hey, uh, the stakes for Oregon are a conference championship. I think that's, uh, that's probably too heavy a weight to carry uh, to hope for anything more than a Pac-12 championship, which when I say that, I don't mean to diminish that. that is, that's a major accomplishment to be able to do that and, and go to the Rose Bowl. There it is. Go to the Rose Bowl. John, I think it's funny that, you know, people have talked about UCLA. If they lose to Oregon, they still have a chance to get to the cultural playoff. Look at their non-conference schedule. Like, it was terrible, but Oregon goes out and plays Georgia, and they're getting penalized for it. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and I too, I also think what he's saying, what Reese Davis is saying, I, I'm glad he said it because I think people need to hear it. And I think if that perception is out there, I, that's what Oregon's up against. I think it's very fair. And, and I think, you know, I, I'd, be, I'd be a hypocrite to sit back here and go like, hey, it's the bald-faced truth, but don't tell us the truth. Like, Reese is saying what he believes to be true, and that's fine. Oregon's going to need to go out, and it's going to need to win some people over and not just win football games. they got to win voters over on that selection committee. And then the other thing they have to do is they have to hope that there is some chaos in front of them. I think Georgia winning the SEC – Georgia beating Tennessee, uh, you know, it really would help their cause. But I think there's a really good shot that more than one SEC team is getting into the playoff. And I think there's a really good shot that Oregon probably is going to end up at the end of the rainbow here with the Rose Bowl as, as maybe the best that they can do. But, you know, there's work to be done. Jeff Schwartz is coming up. He is uh, a former Oregon offensive lineman, eight years in the NFL. He's working at Fox. He's working for Sirius XM, doing his own radio show. You'll hear from Schwartz next. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. One of my favorite guests over the years to have on is former University of Oregon offensive lineman, eight-year NFL veteran, guy with Fox, also with SiriusXM. Jeff Schwartz is joining us. Schwartz, you had a haircut today. Tell me what that's like. This is qu- this question's for me. Give me the experience of yeah. getting a haircut. You know, man, I always get a haircut on, like, I don't have a lot of time during my week, so I just go get a haircut. And my barber moved. I know you're going to feel sorry for me. My barber was like two minutes away from me, and he moved like 25 minutes away from me. Ooh. So I have to be very specific about when I get my hair cut. So it's always kind of when I have a little bit of downtime, and I just want to kind of like shut my brain off. And it's just so relaxing, like the, the sound of the clippers and the, hair, and the hair being trimmed but with the scissors. Like you just get this relaxed state where if there was such thing as like uh, a trim and a nap, man, if you, if you get in a bed, I would go right to sleep, have a great nap. But unfortunately, <laughs> the world doesn't work like that. I'm envious, man. Uh, I'm envious. But also, I, <laughs> what's a haircut cost? Like, give me an idea. What am I saving by okay. not having to do a haircut? So at the old barber shop before this guy moved, it was cash only. And it, was, it was $18. Unbelievably cheap. Wow. Um, the new place is 30 bucks. But the, the difference is, is, like, the new place has, like, TVs and Wi-Fi and, like, better facilities and stuff so 
I'll pay. So I mean, give me a haircut once a month. So thirty bucks is fine. All right, let's talk about the football games. Uh, a whole bunch of big time. Pac-12 football games, uh, UCLA at Oregon, man. How are you feeling about that as a as a former Duck? Oh, man, it's great. You know, a couple of things. One is that we haven't had a game like this at home in quite a while. I mean, even going back to maybe Washington in 2018. Because you remember in, in 2019, the year with the Rose Bowl, we basically played all our quote-unquote rivals and, like, big games on the road that year, right? And then our home games, like, weren't against a, a ton of – it's kind of great teams where you feel like you know you know this game the atmosphere. Um, so it's been a it's been a long time. I'm really excited for our fans to experience this again. You know it's going to be a little overcast, a little rainy, like the perfect atmosphere for a game uh, in October in Austin Stadium. So I'm really excited for for that part of it. And I just think that you know we're seeing each week the team, in my opinion, get incrementally better. Right? We're seeing adjustments being made even in games. Um, the level of play pick up each week, and this is a great opportunity to see if it's all kind of paying off against a really good Bruins squad. So good, you know, good chance for Landing and, and staff to really, I think, cement what they're doing, which I think has been very positive um, over over the first six weeks. The offensive line of Oregon, uh, you know, they haven't allowed many sacks this year. Bo Nix obviously being mobile plays a role in that, but how does that match up in your mind go with Oregon's offensive line? UCLA's front seven. Yeah, the Bruins, you know, can uh, can get after. Right? Lawtu in the middle is really, really good uh, on the uh, on the defensive line. The, the the Murphy twins as well. Uh, the transfers. You know, one thing is a lot of offseason ink was spilled on Lincoln Riley in the transfer portal, right? What he's done there. But Chip Kelly deserves equal amount of credit. Look, obviously they're running back not in this transfer portal, but Zach Charbonnet, right? They're right now their left tackle from Rutgers. Jake Bobo from Duke. Their entire defense, all transfers. Latu, you know, Washington kid. I think he's a Washington kid. Uh, the, the Murphy twins, the entire secondary. Like, he did the exact same thing that Riley did. Um, and obviously, the, you know, they're playing very well. So, yeah, to me, it is about the offensive line controlling those guys. And, you know, it's a big step up in competition from what they faced since, since the Georgia game. And, you know, sometimes early in games it takes a little bit of time as an offensive lineman, when you play a better team, to kind of get used to the physicality and the speed of those players. So I'm very curious to see how maybe the game plan adjusts for that early in the game. I'm not sure it's a thing I have to worry about as the game you know grows longer because offensive line is really good. Um, but it's it's pretty interesting to see kind of what they're going to do early in the game to, to my opinion, kind of adjust to you know more of like the game speed change and just playing a better team. Let me ask you, because Oregon got that taste against Georgia, but then, you know, they've not faced uh, a front, a defensive front that is as big or physical or as athletic as Georgia's yeah. front, obviously. But do you gain something as an offensive lineman when you play against a superior player in week one? Do you carry that all the way to week six, week seven, week eight? Or is that kind of a one-off, uh, you know, mind-blown experience when you when you jump in there? Um. I also I would say Washington State's defensive line not as big as UCLA, but they're pretty good. So they had at least a little bit of that in there. Um, I think you carry it with you because what it does is it makes you change the way you prepare, right? Because when you're like, oh man, like what I what I, what I have done, and I, again, I, I tell you, Oregon's offensive line held their own in that game. There wasn't a lot of pressure on Knicks. Uh, Jalen Carter played well as he showed. He's going to be a, a top three pick in the draft. But there weren't a lot of tackles for losses. Like it was a pretty good job by that front. But 
what it does is it makes you realize kind of where you need to, to practice a little bit more, where you need to be at. And, look, um, if Oregon had played Georgia State to start the season, we'd be in the top four right now. We'd be talking about the playoff team. Uh, but I'm fine with playing Georgia. Like, that's what big programs do. They schedule tough opponents. And, yeah, we got our butts whooped. It might keep us out of the playoff. But uh, look at what we've done since then, right? Like, it was clearly – a good learning experience for the coaching staff, for the players, and they responded accordingly. I expect them to see. Uh, I expect to see a great performance on Saturday as well. Jeff Schwartz with us, uh, former NFL offensive lineman, a guy you can catch on SiriusXM. Great follow on Twitter as well. Jeff, um, you know Chip Kelly's return. A lot's going to be made of that, and I, th- and I think anytime Chip Kelly comes back, or anytime Oregon has a coaching vacancy, people are going to think about Chip Kelly and what he means to the yeah. program. You were part of it. And you watched him elevate the program after your career like you know what do you make of the dynamic of chip kelly he's fantastic and um he should get a standing ovation as usual when he comes out and then you boom the rest of the game right like as i think any fan any fan would right like he deserves a round of applause all those things and he, he is very deserving of that but of course when the game starts you hope he loses right and i think chip would appreciate that from the Oregon fans yeah i think you know, what Chip has really done this year um, is kind of, I think, his groove about what works best to build his roster, right? The knock on him is always that he's not a recruiter like a Dan Lanning, right? Like he's not, he's not this guy that's going after, grabbing the four and five stars, like trying to make plays for these guys. He offers a small amount of kids, and he wants players that fit exactly what he does. But now he can do that with older players in the transfer portal, right? Older guys that he might connect with a little bit better, guys who he's seen film on. He's, like, evaluated, okay, this is what you, you know, Jake Bobo, right? You're a big wide receiver. We, we lost our tight end. We lost our best slot guy. You can fill both those spots, right? You can be kind of our tight end and our slot guy at the same time. Like, come to UCLA, here's what we're doing for – you know, for Dolson, here's what's going with Phillips. Come be a Bruin. Like, I feel like he's finally found the way to build his roster at UCLA, the way that works best for him. And, again, I don't think Oregon fans and, and, and the athletic department wants to build a roster quite the same way. I think they're usually, you know, the portal, if they have, right, we know Bo Nix, obviously, a couple running backs, a couple of defensive linemen, but I think uh, corner as well. I think generally speaking, that's how they would do it, four or five guys here and there, and then recruit the four- and five-star kids. That's not what Oregon wants anymore, right? So, uh, or That's not what Oregon wants, not what Chip does. So I think Chip has found the perfect place for him, man, and I'm, I'm, he's happy there, as, as we know. He's winning a lot, and I'm looking forward to watching. He's off a of bye, man. Like, we're going to see peak Chip Kelly offensive production and creativity on Saturday. Give me an idea. From your standpoint, the bye week, the extra week, does it benefit Chip Kelly, an offensive-minded guy, or does it benefit Dan Lanning on a you know a defensive-minded guy, or is there a little bit of both going on there? Um, it's a little bit of both, but I will say that one of the questions I have a couple questions for this game. One is how UCLA handles the weather and the atmosphere. Right, their first road game, Colorado doesn't count in eight weeks. It's going to be a big difference for them. It's wet be a little rainy, be a little damp, whatever. The second one is the reason Oregon lost the Georgia game is they got outcoached, right? Like, Georgia came out with a much different offense than they had run any time under Kirby Smart. They basically did the exact opposite of what they've always done, and I don't think we were prepared for that. And I think we changed the way we played to prepare or really to have our defense prepared to fix some of those issues we saw in the Georgia game. And so in this bye week now, 
if you are Dan Lanning and staff on defense, how do you approach it, right? Like, did you learn from your preparation against Georgia? I don't think they were they were they they, they didn't prepare. They just prepared for the wrong things, right? So, do, do you do you take this time to not like over prepare and not think about the game too much and just just kind of have a solid game plan? So that's what I'm just kind of. And we might not even notice it, like, until halfway through the game on Saturday. But that, to me, is the fascinating part about it. It's Chip Kelly's offense and what he wants to do and what the wrinkles he's going to make against kind of Dan Lanning and his defense and figuring out, okay, here's where they might attack us. But let's not, you know, let's not over, overthink this a little bit. So I'm curious how that matchup goes. That's my number one thing to look at. Jeff Schwartz with us, Fox Sports, also Sirius XM. Schwartz, uh, around the conference, a lot more enthusiasm. You have, obviously, USC, UCLA, Utah, Oregon, uh, you know, Washington, Washington State, Oregon State are all, are all passable uh, or better. Um, what do you make of the conference landscape? Well, we have better coaches and better quarterbacks, right? That kind of helps. Um, it's a big reason why, right? You better coach at USC, better quarterback. Better coach at Washington, better quarterback. Um, I never thought I'd say this, but better quarterback at Oregon. Bo Nix has been the best quarterback they've had since Justin Herbert, right? Um, I think Dan Lanning is a heck of a coach. You know, Chip Kelly has a good quarterback in fifth year in in uh, in in, uh, in DTR. Like Cam Rising, obviously, with an excellent coach in Kyle Whittingham. So you just have better better coaches and better players at important positions, right? Even going to Jake Dickert, I think, is a really good coach. Cam Ward's sort of up and down, but that that matters, right? And then you have Jonathan Smith, obviously, who's doing it all. And we've talked about this you know, doing it all without the quarterback, right? Like, out of all the positions, that's the one where I think they would say we need the biggest upgrade um, on our roster. So um, it, it's that simple. Like, you know, if you have good coaches and good quarterbacks, you're going to win more games than not. And I think the Pac-12 has upgraded in those spots in the last couple of seasons. Schwartz, uh, you know, in the NFL we've seen offensive uh, quarterbacks obviously being protected, the roughing the passer stuff. Where do you stand on that as a guy who played in the league for eight years? Yeah, I don't like it. Um, I feel that, and I understand the need to protect quarterbacks, right? It's um, it's the lifeblood of, of, I just met, talked for two minutes about quarterbacks, right? It's the lifeblood of football. It's very important. You know, of course, like in this game this weekend, you don't want to see Ty Thompson against Ethan Garbers. You want to see DTR and Bo Nix. So I understand the, the idea of protecting quarterbacks, but I think it's gone too far. I mean, there are so many things where defenders are just tackling, right? They're just doing their basic job and getting getting flagged for. And that, to me, is, is where we have to be better as officials. And I'm not even – I'm not sure I even want them reviewed. I mean, if I want them reviewed, it's like 30 seconds. You have a sky judge, they watch the play, and that's the end of it. It's either a, a rough in the passer or not. And I, not, I don't even know if I want more stoppages of play. But targeting rule, man, it just – it bothers me. To, it's, it's worse to me. Targeting rule is – it, the, the, the rule is supposed to protect players from from obvious instances of being defenseless and getting hit in the head. It doesn't do that. Like, the amount of times guys get thrown out, you know, going back to the, the uh, D.J. Johnson one against Washington State, like, what is he supposed to do? I, I don't know what you, what you want the defenders to do. The game is played so fast, right? It's played so fast. And we review these plays in super slow motion, and we zoom in. Oh, my God, his helmet grazed the other helmet. 
So, like, like, to me, that's not the spirit of the rule, right? The spirit of the rule, and we know what it is. We're not dumb football fans, right? Our wide receiver's over the middle of the field, and he gets lit up right in the helmet. Okay, fine. Throw that guy out, whatever. But the other stuff, like this ticky-tack stuff, like, come on, man. I, I just think it, it, it doesn't help the game. It slows the game up. Fans are, are angry about the, the ejections and, 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 and the targeting calls. Um, it really it really bothers me. And I, they're not going to do anything about it. We're just going to be angry. But I think it makes the product much worse. All right. I, I picked Oregon 38-31 over UCLA. I like the home field in the Pac-12. What's Jeff Schwartz say? Uh, I am picking Oregon to win, but I would take the Bruins to cover the six or six and a half. That's the way I look at it. I mean, you have two very even teams, in my opinion. Um, I think Oregon's defense is a little bit better than they give them credit for. A lot of points scored late in games when, when the starters are out. Uh, I think really think home field advantage is a huge deal here. When you look at, again, like, look at last weekend. How many home teams won their games, like, in these big games? It is hard to go on the road and win as a dog, especially when you haven't done it yet this season and you're playing a little bit of, of, of some weather. So I think Oregon wins again. And maybe Oregon will get respect. I feel like the talk around Oregon is still like, oh, they lost to Georgia. Yeah, we did. We got our butts whooped. But, like, that was – that was when the sun was still out, right? Like, this, it's a new, it's a fall now. Like, can we move past that, that loss for Oregon? So, I uh, hope they win. They got a tough stretch coming up with a bunch of a better games. So, it'll be nice to start off after the bye with a win. Jeff Schwartz, thank you, my friend. Take care, bud. Thanks for having me. Jeff Schwartz, catch him on SiriusXM, Fox Sports. Good follow on Twitter. Still ahead on today's show, we'll talk to Mike Sanford, the Colorado coach. Plus, what's your peeve is coming up, and we'll talk about Oregon and Chip Kelly. You got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Mike Sanford, the Colorado coach, will be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour. This show is sailing along. We'll also be giving our picks for the Pac-12 weekend and debating the games uh, if there's anything changed. Uh, Anna has popped into the studio. Very important evening for the children in our household over at their elementary school. They're having the, uh, what are they calling it, the barn bash? What is, what's happening Something there? like that. Barn something. Barn, blast. Barn blast. Yeah. I don't know if I want to be involved in... There's a spooky school bus involved and okay. everything. Yeah. All right. I, all I know is the uh, the first grader in our household woke up this morning and said, today's the day, or this is the big day. And I was like, what big day? You know, something going on I don't know about over here? And apparently there's some kind of Halloween thing that is going on. Good on that. Anna will be dressing up and taking the kids. Mm. That'll be awesome. Good for you. You're a good mom. That's a game time decision. You're a good mom dressing up like that. Uh, college football weekend ahead. Major League Baseball, the NFL. 49ers got Christian McCaffrey. I announced that to Anna last night. I don't know if it registered with her that the 49ers got a little better. Guys, are the Niners now, where are they in the hierarchy of the NFL with that trade? They Mortgage some of their future, gave up some draft picks, get Christian McCaffrey, got to keep him healthy. But where are they really, guys? Yeah, I mean, they, they're they going all in, right? And I, I do appreciate that. I always like when teams do that. I will say, though, it seemed like a lot of draft picks to give up for a running back. And maybe that's just me, but I'm still in the camp of you know running backs. They're not a dime a dozen, but you can find guys to fill different roles. Um, so I thought it was a lot to give up just for one guy. But I do think that the 49ers... Uh, should be the favorite in the NFC West. 
and they're talented enough to be right there in the NFC. I think the NFC is wide open. The Eagles are the favorite to get to the Super Bowl. I'm still not buying Jalen Hurts uh, and the Eagles to be the ultimate favorite. So I think the Niners have a legit shot, and Chris McCaffrey can only help. I think the only question is, uh, can he stay healthy? I know that uh, Carolina was looking for a first-rounder. The Rams and the Niners, the two teams in it at the end, neither had a first to give. Uh, San Francisco definitely gave up the equivalent of a first. But again, you you look at the NFC West, it's it's weak. The Rams have taken a step back. I mean, you have the Eagles, you have the Vikings, may, uh, the Giants, I guess, if you're a believer in them. I think if you're going to mortgage the future a little bit and take one shot, this is kind of the year to do it. So, I mean, we'll see what happens. I, I know he's supposed to, to at least get a few snaps on Sunday. I love the move. I love the move as well. I think that makes them... Highly entertaining on the offensive side of the ball with Debo Samuels and George Kittle and McCaffrey on offense. I also, I it kind of signals to me that Kyle Shanahan and and this regime see this as their window. Like let's let's apply the logic the Niners used to the logic the the Trailblazers don't use. The Trailblazers have a generational player by their franchise standards in Damian Lillard. And they aren't making this kind of move to go for it. It's a big swing. It might get somebody fired, this kind of trade. But it's clearly the Niners signaling like, hey, we're going for it right now. We feel like we got the quarterback. We feel like the league is in a position that we could go for it. And I kind of respect and admire that. Yeah, no doubt. And and the other thing to go with that is is we always wonder, like, what does Dame look like if he has quality help around him? Well, Kyle Shanahan has always made average running backs look really good. What can he do with an elite running back? Is he really going to be that much better? Maybe he is, maybe he's not. But you got to give the guy the talent and see what he can do with it. And if anyone can get you know, McCaffrey uh, to be even better than he has been, it's probably Kyle Shanahan. Meanwhile, uh, that's the uh, NFL news. In the Pac-12, uh, I wrote a column today at johnconzano.com about Brett Yormark, the Big 12 commissioner, and George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, and the very different tactics that they're taking uh, they have the same objective. They're both negotiating media rights deals. Yormark is out. He's throwing salt. He's throwing gasoline in some cases. He's definitely a salesperson. He's out. He's talking a lot. Uh, George Klyovkov, not saying a whole bunch, did one interview with John Wilner and myself and is staying relatively quiet. Pac-12's got a basketball media day next week. Klyovkov's going to have to talk. Is Klyovkov making a mistake? Which of the two tactics is more effective, is better. Anna, how do we declare a winner here? Uh, we can't yet because we will declare the winner when the deals are struck and announced. So if Klyovkov pulls this off and masterminds some kind of brilliant, innovative, cutting-edge deal that incorporates new technology and streaming services, we will say... Gosh, he was wise to not say much along the way and screw up a potentially great deal. If that doesn't happen, then we will look back and we'll be like, why did he stay quiet that whole time? And he let other voices fill in the void and, um, you know, and supply the headlines. How much, you know, here's the other thing is, is there any value in winning the public facing argument here with, the Big 12 commissioner is clearly saying more, and I think if there's a public argument, you know, George Klyovkov is, is essentially ceded that to the Big 12. He's essentially gone, this, winning this public thing doesn't matter to us. Is it a misfire? I, 
I'm nervous about it because of what you're saying. There's unrest and uncertainty among fans, athletes, coaches, athletic directors. No, I, don't, a lot I, don't, of, I don't think it extends not to the athletic ADs. Directors. Okay, not I don't, the ADs. See, I think that it stops. I do hear from I hear from recruits, uh-huh. and I hear from coaches within the footprint. Yeah. Who are going? What do you think is going to happen? They are a little nervous. I had one head coach ask me, "What do you think is going to happen on media day?" Like, and he was concerned. Yeah. But the ads and the presidents seem locked in. They're inside the inner sanctum with George Klyovkov. Mm-hmm. So, is it a mistake to let the public kind of dangle and blow in the wind a little? If you emerge with a great deal, if you come out of the conclave and you go, "Hey, the, <laughs> you know, we've got smoke. It's we got a, smoke. We got a new pope." Yeah, I mean, that's my hope, you know, if I'm being honest, like, I hope that this is all worth it and that we were all patient for a good reason. Uh, But, you know, I'll be honest with you, I really was looking for more at the Pac-12 Media Day over the summer, and there wasn't much that was said there that was encouraging and hopeful. Um, So, yeah. So he's kind of just gone, wait and see, wait and see. Yeah. And meanwhile, the Big 12 commissioner is going... We're gonna, we're gonna, and he's planting a flag in the in the middle of the stadium, right in the middle of the turf. And isn't that the problem? Is that we got burned by Larry Scott by trusting him, and nothing came to fruition. So now we're doing the same exact thing with Klyovkov, Is that we're just blindly putting our trust in it, and then all of a sudden it could just get you know yeah. pulled out from underneath us. I also think the like I can't remember like I like I've been working in this job since about 1995 or so. Mm-hmm. I can't remember this kind of negotiation being this public. Like, I don't remember fans being tuned into media rights. Mm-hmm. And I've had numerous fans tell me, when is this going to be over? I, I just need it to be over. Mm-hmm. They don't want to know. The p- fans don't want to be tuned into this stuff. They, yeah. they want to be tuned into their teams and the games, and they, yeah. don't, like, they don't care about it. I mean, it's so much of it's like inside baseball, because all the fan really cares about is, like, is my team – going to be able to recruit top players and how am i going to watch my team like those are the two basic questions that the fans are wanting answered right 100 percent. and so my concern for uh, you know to answer those questions is are the coaches in the pac-12 are are they at a disadvantage because they're having to spend so much of their time in conversations with recruits reassuring them that things are gonna be okay maybe Maybe because there might be some recruits who would, you know, be in line to go to a Big Ten school or an SEC school or a Big 12 school, and they want to know, hey, uh, you know, I'm choosing between USC and Oregon. Uh, I want to know that you guys are going to be near the playoff. But but I think the university president solved a part of the problem by essentially going, hey, we're going to expand the playoff. Everybody settle down. That did quiet everyone down for a little bit because because Oregon, Washington, whoever's in the Pac-12. They have a clearer path to the playoff in the Pac-12 conference than they do anywhere else. Like it's it's not the equivalent of Gonzaga in the WCC. The WCC remains the only basketball conference in America where the regular season champion gets a double bye. So it is set up for Gonzaga to win the regular season, win the conference tournament, be highly seated, mm-hmm. get an unequal share of the revenue. Like Gonzaga is living large in the WCC, right? So. If you're a Pac-12 school like Oregon or Washington, it's not quite the same. You're not getting a bye to the conference championship game, but you're getting 
competition you can handle Mm -hmm. in the Pac-12 that you have handled in the last decade in the Pac-12, and you're not having to deal with Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, whoever, to get to the playoff. You can now just be your conference champion, get the automatic, you know, you know, pass through to the title, you know, the conference uh, college football playoff, probably host a game, get the big payout, and you matter. Yeah, but part of the Pac-12 staying healthy in this larger ecosystem is that the four corner schools stay within conference, right? For now, I think they are. They're watching Oregon and Washington. You know, here's what I can say. I've talked to multiple athletic directors in of those four corner schools okay and i'm hearing the same message from them all none of them have had contact with the big 12 none of them are want to leave none of them uh are saying hey if we don't get what we need we're going to leave they're all going as long as oregon and washington stay and this conference stays together this is the right place for us a move to the Big 12 is a lateral move for them. And I keep telling, like, the Big 12 fans are all mad at me. I don't, I'm not anti-Big 12. I hope the Big 12 thrives and continues to exist because what you can't have in college athletics is the SEC and the Big 10, you know, dominating everything. Reese Davis from ESPN came on earlier, and he says, unfortunately, I think it's going to be these 70 teams that separate themselves. I think it needs to be a little, a few more than that. But I think that's kind of what everybody is thinking is like, hey, there's only going to be room for about 70 or 80 schools. And about 35 schools are going to you know, have nowhere to go at the end of this. But I think it's going to be Big Ten, SEC, ACC, Big 12, Pac-12. I, if I'm in the Mountain West, Conference USA or somewhere else, there may not be a place for you at the table when the dust settles. But I think the Pac-12 and the Big 12 are both going to be fine. Both. I, I just hope you're right. Nah, I just think, <laughs> but I just you didn't answer the question. The question I ask you is, is it a mistake to not play the public-facing, public relations game? Big 12's playing it. Pac-12 is going. We don't even hear it. We're not interested. We're focused on our negotiation. Is there a mistake in leaving your stakeholders, like fans, coaches, media members, on the outside looking in, or? In the end, does it not matter? It's just two ways to end up at the same place. Gosh, um, I don't know. I, I, it, it freaks me out a little bit just because I want to hear a little bit more. Like, pull back the curtain just a little bit. I don't need a lot, but I need something substantive more than, you know, we're making progress kind of thing because it leaves the rest of us uh, just trying to, like, read the tea leaves, you know? And... Again, I go back to the recruiting thing because it's kind of like I, I, like if I put myself in the place of a parent of a D1 recruit and I'm trying to figure out where my kid is going to go play, I kind of want a sure thing. I want these assurances that it's going to be okay and I need them in like substantive ways. I keep hearing from basketball coaches and I didn't think I would hear from basketball coaches, but I heard from a basketball assistant coach who's at one of the schools that has been rumored to be an expansion target for the Pac-12. So I'm just going to say it's somebody at either San Diego State, Boise State, SMU, Fresno State, Boise, or no, Fresno, Boise, UNLV. Mm -hmm. Okay? So it's somebody at one of those schools reached out to me and said, hey, we're recruiting players and just wondering what you think the timeline is (sighs) because 
they want to be able to sell to recruits that yes. they will be in the Pac-12 conference, or they might be. Right. So they're selling right now. These other schools that are on the outside are selling the idea that, hey, we might be in the Pac-12 <laughs> as they're recruiting. Okay. And I said, when do you need to know? And he said, probably it would be great to know by like January 1 yeah. to be able to tell a kid, hey, we're going to be in a Pac-12 school or we're not going to be in a Pac-12 school two years from now. Right. And so I think that's really interesting byproduct like that I didn't really even think about is that there's some mid-major assistant coach who's meeting with kids going, hey, we're one of four or five schools that the Pac-12 is looking at. And we might be a Pac-12 school because they're just trying to get ready if they get invited to be able to compete and they're probably hoping that they yeah, get invited sure all right what's your peeve is it up coming up next i don't want you going to the weekend carrying that peeve around what's bothering you what is you know somebody cut you off somebody was rude to you i want to know what your peeve is 503-417-7575 line up and bring the heat Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. What's your peeve? I want you to line up. 503-417-7575. I almost forgot the phone number. <laughs> I went to give it. And I went, oh. It's uh, Friday. Well, we have a backline number. And earlier in the show, Reese Davis was asking for the uh, the backline number. He didn't want, he wanted to call in unimpeded, and so I almost gave the backline number. That's what I was gonna do, which everybody would love. Five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five is the number. Grab a line right now. I want to know what's been bothering you. Uh, and by the way, when you share these, it's it there's a catharsis that happens, not just with you, but with other people who are listening. Who are going, oh yeah, that bothers me too. I'm not the only one that gets bothered when people, you know, walk across an intersection when the light is, you know, turned red on them and they're jaywalking essentially. You're not the only one that gets mad if somebody doesn't hold a door for you or if somebody, you let somebody in in traffic and they don't give you the courtesy wave. Um, You know, you're not the only one bothered by that. So I want you to call in and share those, especially with love first-time callers at 503-417-7575. Line up now. We're all going to give our peeves. I want to hear yours as well. What's your peeve? Oh, that pisses me off. That pisses me right off. Call 503-417-7575 and tell Kinzano what's your peeve on the BFT. Brought to you by Revolution Dental Implant Center. A smile revolution, one day solution. What's your peeve? Who wants to go first? Who's got one right now that they just got to get off their chest? I got, I got it. I'll start it off here. All right, you do it. Uh, so this happened last night, but it happens all the time, especially when sports are happening. Um, like the kids will go to bed right at the end of some sporting events, like start of the East Coast. And right when they do... Like last night, I was watching the Yankees-Astros game, and it was the ninth inning. The Yankees got a runner on base, tie and run on first base uh, game uh, to take the lead at home. And there's two outs, and all of a sudden, I hear my wife yell down, hey, Steven, I need your help for bedtime, and I got to help the kids with bedtime. Oh, and it's just man. like, you know what? Can we just hold off for like you know five minutes? And That's I know if I bring bowl. it up, if I say it, I'm in trouble. 
<laughs> like you can't, I can't, I can't say, hey, let's stall. Like it's, it's, it's right now, Stephen. You need to fill up some water bottles, get a snack, get some medicine. Like bring it all up here. Stop yeah. what you're doing. Forget about the game. And it happens. Some bull. It is, and it happened. <laughs> So, but uh, there's one time uh, national championship game, North Carolina Villanova, when they hit the game-winning shot yeah. at the buzzer. Literally, Marcus Page hits a three-pointer to, to tie the game. I get called up for bedtime, and it's like, you know what? There's like four seconds. Can I watch the national championship? But you know, yeah, I do what I, I do. I think you are. I'm in the right. You're oppressed. It, let's yeah. just say what it is. <laughs> let's just say what it is. I'm gonna pass that you on know? to her. Yeah. Um, here's the other thing. Like as you bring that up. <laughs> You know, you you got kids are taking their water bottles to bed. They're taking a snack. They're oh. taking a book. Our kids are listening to podcasts when they fall asleep. Yeah, I I gotta be honest with you. My parents, they just pointed down the hall. That was bedtime. <laughs> that said, was the whole ritual. They Go. said brush your teeth and turn the lights off. <laughs> they, they said brush the teeth that you don't want to f- have fall out on you. Yeah, that's all. That, and they pointed down the hallway. Exactly. And then we went. I didn't get a water bottle. I didn't get my. My tummy rubbed. I didn't get my, oh, can you give me a back rub, Mom? I heard that one the other night. I went in there last night. Our six-year-old is making a tent in her room. The lights are off. She's erected a tent in the middle of her bed. And I was like, what are you doing? It's bedtime. Yeah, my kids have like a nighttime water bottle, like a bedroom water bottle, a downstairs water bottle, a school water bottle. It's like, come on. We don't know anything about what you're talking about. No, yeah. Peter's That's not in the totally oh, unfamiliar yeah. to us. Yeah, it's it's like I didn't even get a. <laughs> hey, Steven, go get a glass or go drink out of the hose. That's what I got when I was yeah. a kid. All right, go outside. This water's not cold enough. Yeah, that that go, one go too. Drink the hose. Hey, so you know what? What would happen if you just said, you know what? Not now. Mm, I don't know. I don't know what happened. Well, it's a good thing you didn't retort anything to your wife, but decided to go on radio the very next day and discuss it. I thought this was just between us. Is this, yeah, yeah, between us. Nobody's listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They'll never get back no, it's to not her. statewide? Oh, uh, geez. I, I like that. Let's take one from a caller, and then we'll come back. Anna, you're going to go next. But let's go to Tim in Portland. Tim, what's your piece? My piece is suicide by truck. Okay. So I drive truck. I listen to you while I drive a truck. But today, my truck was empty coming back from uh, Corvallis, and it's like driving on snow with all the oil and everything. And people pull right in front of me mm. in traffic. I can't stop. There's yeah. nothing I can do. Yeah, they cut it. they're essentially cutting you off. Right. And sometimes when they do that, if I'm have a full load normally that would be worse but not today so they're just betting on whether i'm loaded or not okay so give us an idea uh, for as a public service you know we come upon a uh, a semi going down i-5 how much room in front of you should we be giving you before we cut over so if i'm going it depends on the speed of course but at 55 miles an hour, I have to have 10 to 11 car lengths. Yeah. If I'm loaded. Yeah. So we got to give him some room. And people don't know whether trucks are loaded. So people yeah. think that are driving ne- alongside you, because there's room, they're just going to take it. Yeah. That's just a well, good PSA for everybody. That was a PSA. We might save the life here yeah. at this radio show. Mm. We'll make so that a promo, too. This show is kind of heroic, if you think about it. Anna, <laughs> what's your uh, what's your peeve? Uh, my peeve is people who have unilateral conversations. So these are the people who uh, they're saying their piece, 
and you're giving them your eye contact and your attention, and then the moment they're done talking and you begin talking, they grab their phone. And they have tuned you out. Oh, who does that? They pretend like they're listening <laughs> to you, but they're just doing whatever on their phone. And clearly, like, they're done. Their stage, is, their stage time is done, and therefore they don't, they're not reciprocating. Are they, basically, they're saying to you what they have to say is more important than what you have to say. Absolutely. Yes. Mm. I oh. felt bad. As soon as you started talking, I was just started browsing the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta go. We're gonna go to break. That doesn't count. Okay. We're you're okay. You're yeah. okay. Well, I I think so. You that listening, that active listening that you're talking yes. about. Yes. But have you ever been in a conversation where the other person's talking and you're just like, there is nothing going on here. That I this person is making me dumber right, when they're talking. And what do you do? You still just look them in the eye and nod. I try. And I the thing with peeves, right? Let's be honest here. Is Every peeve that I've ever said in this segment, I am 100% guilty of doing at some point. So I realize that I yeah. am hypocritical in these, uh, in these criticisms. Got to be self-aware. Got to be self-aware. <laughs> That's a good peeve. So, guys, let's try to do a better job of listening. Ryan's in Oregon City. Ryan, what do you got? What, what's up, man? Hey, uh, appreciate everything. Uh, listen to you every day. Donate to the BFT Foundation. Thank you. Um, my peeve is... Why did you not ask Reach Davis about Sabrina being the college game, game day picker? And Anna, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I should have. I got interrupted in the interview, if you heard it, by his bad phone cutting out. We had to go to break and came back. I lost rhythm and um, I didn't want to hold him too much longer. But that was a question I was getting to and I didn't get to. And I don't know. Anna, what do you think about Sabrina being the picker? On college game day. She gets to pick the winners of the uh, 10 games or so that they pick. I think that's awesome. I'm excited for it. I've been seeing the promotions for it for the last few days, and I think it's brilliant marketing, and I love that she's still connecting with Oregon in that way. And I also was kind of gonna thinking to myself, like, well, who else is going to pick? Like, <laughs> she's in town. Yeah. It, it's like playing poker. Who's Who can trump the Sabrina Ionescu card? <laughs> right. Is well, that, it, that's the only guy you know? is Marcus Mariota, isn't it? Mariota? He's a little busy right now. Okay, yeah, let's, let's, let's think about it. From the state of Oregon, nationally, yeah. is there a singer, a dancer, somebody was on American Idol, somebody, nope. you know, is there an actor? Well, Phil Knight. Phil Knight, maybe, maybe, because of his connection and, you know, ESPN seems to pay attention to him. Yeah, yeah, but he's, like, camera shy, though. Like, he's not going to be into that, you know? Not his thing. Not his thing. But... So Phil Knight, Sabrina, Marcus Mariota. How about Bill Walton? No, they have Bill Walton once in a while as a broadcaster. Mm -hmm. So it's not he's not novelty enough. Yeah. Um Dan you know, Dan Fouts, he's happy, he's hanging out in sisters. <laughs> you know, he doesn't need it. I yeah, so I think you're kinda of limited on what you can do there. And Sabrina's in town, like slam dunk. Yeah, I mean, but let's not take away anything from her. Like she is absolutely the right, yeah. best, yeah. relevant oh, it's, person. It's a knockout to do this. Yes, it's a knockout. Peter, what's your peeve? Man, I got kind of a, a specific one right now. But if someone's doing you a solid, whether it's a person or say a, a company, they're hooking you up. Don't turn it into a negotiation. Just take the solid. I went to a concert last night. I went and saw the Who at Moda Center, and it turns out that uh, the show, it was undersold. So they were closing some of the bad sections and uh, upgrading people. Just sweet, free tickets. And again, I had I had 300 level. I was told, hey, go to this desk. The, the people in front of me, 
were legit, and there's a line. They're arguing about where they're going to get placed. For a good seven minutes, they have a seat map out on their phone. You're getting a free upgrade. Just take it. We have a line going, I mean, probably 12, 15 people deep. It takes uh, a long time. Everyone just want to get to their seat. The lady was exasperated. They storm out. I don't know why they're mad. I walk up. First thing I say is, I'm so sorry. Just give me whatever you got. The lady mm-hmm. breathes a sigh of relief, grabs a couple hundred level tickets for me. Flies don't work. You, or, <laughs> you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Man, don't argue. Just take the gift. Take the gift. Peter Sampson, that's a good one. I want yours at 503-417-7575. I'll share mine next. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. What's your peeve? What bothers you? What is uh, on your mind? 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Stephen shared. Anna shared. I will share mine. I want a couple more of yours. I'll give mine as well. Let's go to Mike, who's in Vancouver. Mike, what's your peeve? Hey, John. Hey, Anna. How are you guys? We're well. I'm well. Anna, you Good. 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 Don't want to speak for you. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. So, I drive a lot, and... I don't know what it is. It's gotten worse and worse and worse over the years. People that sit and park in the left lane. It is not your job to limit other people's speed. Move over. It just absolutely drives me mad. Yeah. Do you find that this only happens in the Pacific Northwest? No. (laughs) Okay. It's everywhere, but it's, it's more relevant because I'm here. But, yes, no, it's. It's getting worse and worse. Yeah, I, I have noticed that as well, that I had a couple of... What do you do when somebody is parked in the lane like that? How do you handle that, Mike? Uh, well, safely, I slow down. You try to give them a, a friendly flash or whatever, but I usually have to end up moving over and passing them on the right. And that's not ideal, passing not ideal. on the right. It isn't, but you know what? I, I When I pass by those people, I always I often glance over, and I go, what are they doing? And, <laughs> and more often than not, they're just kind of oblivious, and I kind of wonder if they're happier. Like, are they just happier than the rest of us? And they're meandering along in the fast lane at, like, 52 miles an hour. I used to have a photographer that just... Would, it would drive him insane because yeah. you know when you go out with, as a news crew the photographers are generally the one that drives unless you're in a time crunch situation and they need to be working while you drive yeah and uh he was so adamantly against passing on the right because everybody knows like that's not safe because there's people from the left lane as soon as that person who's driving slow in the left lane decides to change to the middle lane you are then endangered because chances are if you're trying to pass on the right, they're mm. not even seeing you. <laughs> not even seeing you. And then I often will try to gesture like pull over. They're not getting me then either. All right. Here's my peef. And it continues to be people on social media. That's it. No, people on social <laughs> media who uh, will comment on something that I've written. Yeah. And... I know they haven't read it, and I don't understand that. Well, how do you know they haven't read it? Because they'll comment within seconds of me posting, or they'll make a comment, and I go literally like fifth paragraph, I addressed your comment. 
Like they're asking me for an answer that I've already provided. And I almost want to say, hey, give me your phone number. I'll call you and I'll just explain it to you. It would be easier. It'd be easier than us going back and forth on social media. Uh, the five at five is coming up. Um, I'm sorry I didn't get everybody's peeve today. I really wanted to. Uh, but the five at five is coming up, and we got Mike Sanford, the Colorado coach, in the five o'clock hour as well. Why don't you leave it right here? B F F T from the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights. Here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Am I asking too much to ask people to be more thoughtful on social media? <laughs> Probably. Maybe, maybe that's somebody else's peeve. People who expect better of humanity on social media have it all wrong. We got the five at five for you. We promised you all week that the five at five would be uplifting and heartwarming and inspiring and lasted one day. We got one day of that. And then Anna kind of went into this dark five at five spin that she was on <laughs> are you gonna put the soccer goalie in the five at five today i guess i am now are you or are you not yeah sure 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 or should we just tell that story independently mm. How do, you, do you want to include it or no sure okay stay tuned for uplifting and heartwarming with mild nudity <laughs> the five at five the five at five. Well, the 49ers went after and got Christian McCaffrey. He's already in their locker room, already practicing. Kyle Shanahan talking about Christian McCaffrey and the 49ers. By the way, 49ers uh, and general manager John Lynch speaking a lot about this today. John Lynch said that the belief in his roster led him to take a swing at Christian McCaffrey. The Niners given up a whole bunch of draft picks in order to get McCaffrey. Their offense certainly could benefit from another playmaker and will benefit from another playmaker. But we're talking also about a guy who's missed 23 games over the last two seasons because of injury. If he stays healthy, the Niners are going to look smart. They may win it all. If he doesn't, this could end up being the kind of trade that gets John Lynch or his head coach, Kyle Shanahan, in trouble. Keep an eye on that. Niners get Christian McCaffrey. Niners are pleased that he'll be playing for them and not the Rams. But keep an eye on whether or not the deal is good. The jury is out on that one. Anna, number two, go. Did you hear about Lance McCullers Jr.? He won't be taking the mound for the Astros in Game 3 tomorrow because... The recent celebration in Houston went too far. He told reporters today that he sustained a small cut to his throwing elbow after being hit by a champagne bottle during the team's victory celebration after their series win against the Mariners. He made clear that he's feeling okay now, but he's been dealing with some swelling over the last few days. Too much celebrating. He says it's really no one's fault. It was just an accident. You've got to be careful. Dogpiling and with champagne and goggles on, it's dangerous in there. <laughs> Number three in our five at five, running back Todd Gurley. Remember him? Well, he says he's done. He's done with football. He told the NFL Network that he is not going to make it back. 
He hasn't sent in his retirement papers, but he says there's no question he's done playing football. He last played for the Atlanta Falcons in 2020, rushed for 678 yards and nine touchdowns. But really, you remember Gurley in a Rams uniform. Spent his first five NFL seasons with the Rams, signed a four-year $60 million contract in 2018, made him the highest paid running back in NFL history. And then he kind of disappeared, got hurt, faded away during the playoffs in the Super Bowl. He finishes his NFL career with 6,082 yards, 67 touchdowns, played 88 games. Todd Gurley says he's done with football, hasn't sent in the paperwork, but it sounds like he is hanging it up. Anna, number four, go. I don't understand how this is okay, but a Colombian pro soccer player uh, decided to try and distract his opponent during a game, and he pulled down his shorts and flashed his profits just as a team on a player on the other team was trying to do a free kick. So wait, wait, he's trying to, he's got a free kick. Got a free kick. The goaltender who's getting ready in the middle of the goal. The dro- defender. Dropped his short. Defender. Oh, he's not the goaltender. Yeah, Gaysan Pereira went to the extreme okay. to try and get that player on the other team to miss the free kick. So shortly after the attacker lined up to take the shot, Pereira stood nearby, grabbed his pants, his shorts, and exposed himself. Is now, that, is, the, did he get a yellow card? Did you get you get a penalty for that? The the kick did not end up resulting in a goal. And so uh, uh, we're gonna see this now all over the place. <laughs> is there anything specific that says you can't do that? Like in the NFL, as a I kicker, like as a kicker is lining up to kick a game-winning field goal, can the defensive end drop his pants <laughs> and be like, "Hey, over here"? Talk about using your whole body. You know to what? Get the job done. You want to win or not? How committed are you? Everyone's on the free throw line, just <laughs> mooning the shooter. <laughs> Did you guys see the deal uh, in uh, Philadelphia with? Was it Chick Fil A? Seventy Sixers games. Yeah, yeah. Chick-fil-A. So if 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 an opponent opposing team misses two free throws, it's free Chick Fil A nuggets for everybody. Really? Yeah, and so. I think it was Giannis who was on the line from Milwaukee. Was it last night or the night yeah, before? Yeah, it was uh, last night. Last night. Okay, Giannis missed the first one. Crowd's going crazy. And, like, I don't even think the broadcasters quite grasped what was going on because the whole arena is going bananas because they know if he misses the second free throw, it's it's free nuggets. Oh, brilliant. It's a great idea. That's really kind of a twist on the Chalupa. Yeah. You know, the Chalupa had much a much more positive spin to the Blazers. Yeah, it may get to 100 points. Yeah. It's kind of the, it's the negative version of that. This is to rile up the crowd. It's yeah. Philly, though, kind of, right? Like right. Yeah. So Philly. Finally, fifth thing in our five at five. Let's talk about Russell Wilson. Everybody else is. Denver Broncos quarterback who has been a limited participant in practice this week because of his hamstring injury. He's listed as questionable for Sunday's game against the Jets. His coach, for now, Nathaniel Hackett, called Wilson's status a game-time decision. He's day-to-day, they said. They can always adjust the game plan. I think this one's kind of interesting. You know, Mark Rippon's kid, Brett, is the backup quarterback in Denver. And he's taken a significant number of snaps this week with the starting offense. He's 26. Last three seasons, he's been either on the roster or the practice squad, but he won the backup job in training camp. He's only got one start in the NFL. He's got the weapons. He's got the tools. 
He's been around a little bit. I just kind of wonder what's going to happen. I kind of am rooting to see Rippon instead of Russell Wilson in the lineup because if he plays well, I think it causes a whole nother conundrum for the Denver Broncos. Keep an eye on that quarterback situation. Wilson uh, suffered the injury in the fourth quarter Monday night against the Chargers. Got an MRI on Tuesday. It's been limited the last three days. Denver does not know who will start at quarterback. That is the five at five. Um, Coming up, we're going to talk to Mike Sanford, the Colorado coach. You know what just got me thinking about is, again, Ben Gulbertson's the quarterback at Oregon State. Looks like he's going to start this week. Chance Nolan still out for Oregon State. I was at that Utah-Oregon State game, and I saw Chance Nolan after the game. And, you know, he left that game with what they called a neck or head injury. People have speculated it's a concussion. But the more I have watched the tape of the injury, the more I believe, and I'm, I'm not a medical expert. I don't know this. Nobody at Oregon State's telling me this. I think it's a neck injury, not a concussion for Chance Nolan. And I think this because, not just because of, you know, the fact that he's not practiced yet, and, you know, normally you would expect a guy that had a concussion that long ago to be back. I, it was kind of the way he was holding his head and neck as he left the stadium that night. I was there. I was the only media member that saw him leave because I went up the ramp and I saw him and he passed by me and he was holding his neck and head. He was supporting his neck and it made my neck hurt. Mm. And then I went back and watched the film of it. I actually think he has a neck injury and I don't think they're going to want to mess around with that. I'm kind of wondering if it's going to be Ben Goldbrinson from here on out for Oregon State. Now, nobody at Oregon State is saying that, but it's just if it were just a concussion, I would have expected Chance Nolan back this week, and he's not coming back. Hmm. If they're without him, can they finish this year with Goldbrinson? Can they win with him? That's the question. Can they run the ball and win with him? I think, you know, I think they're up against something here. And I'm really looking, that's why I'm looking at this week's game and I'm going, is he, you know, is he going to come out and take a big step forward? Because now this will be his third start. They don't lean on him, but they need him to make some plays. And they'll run the football, they'll play defense. Can Ben Goldbrinson make some plays? Can he make, like, keep an eye on that if, you know, because this game may not be close. Like, Oregon State may just beat Colorado's brain in, but I think there's a chance here that we're looking at Oregon State's starting quarterback for the rest of the year. That's interesting. I mean, I, I hope uh, for Chance Nolan that if it is a serious neck injury that yeah. he heeds, you know, the medical advice around that. Because what, if, like, he's graduating this year? This would be his last year Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I can't remember how many games he played in. Could he come back? He might have just played in, you know, it was more than four. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And But it... You know, I had another. I asked another Pac-12 football coach about Nolan. Yeah. Because I said, you know, have you seen any of Nolan, any of Gulbrinson? And the coach said to me, I actually think Chance Nolan is a lot better than Ben Gulbrinson. Hmm. And then I said, I think his neck is hurt. And he said, Yeah, if he had a concussion, he should have been already back practicing, cleared. Hmm. Like that should have been probably like the timeline of that would have worked out. So I think there's something else going on with his neck or his head, and I think probably Oregon State, you know, is not willing to talk about it yet. Maybe they don't know what yeah. the prognosis is. Uh, that said, Mike Sanford is the coach at Colorado. 
He's going to join us coming up. He's the interim coach. He's a guy who has been in football for a lot of his life. If you don't know Mike Sanford Jr., Mike Sanford Sr. was a coach in the Pac-12. He coached at USC. He was on John McKay's staff at USC. And so Mike Sanford Jr. grew up in that household with a dad as a football assistant coach. He then, uh, later in his own career, played at Boise State, uh, went on to coach at Boise State, went to Western Kentucky where he coached with P.J. Fleck, and then uh, coached with Jim Harbaugh, coached on David Shaw's staff at Stanford, then went to Minnesota with P.J. Fleck, and now finds himself at Colorado holding the keys after Carl Durrell got fired. So Mike Sanford is, uh, you know, going to be coming to Reeser Stadium tomorrow. He'll join us next to talk about the game, uh, Colorado visiting Oregon State. Mike Sanford, Jr., the coach at Colorado, next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Colorado will go to Reeser Stadium on Saturday. It's a big football game for Oregon State. It's a big football game for Colorado. They're coming off a win. Uh, joining us, interim head coach at Colorado, Mike Sanford, is with us. Hey, how did that feel last week to to win a football game in front of 50,000 parents and fans uh, there in Boulder? It felt really good. Uh, you know, it was, it was long overdue. I think a lot of the emotion um, for our team, for our coaching staff, what we've gone through, not just, uh, you know, not just the previous two weeks, um, you know, seeing seeing a guy that we all loved and, and Coach Burrell, um, uh, you know, not be with us, but also, you know, really the, how the first five games have played out. Um, yeah, I think it was just uh, one of those explosions of uh, of joy um, that happened, you know, across across our sideline, and and I think that reverberated with the crowd and fan base here. And you know, it was just uh, it was a special Saturday. Um, certainly something that we believe we can build on. Uh, and, and for me, uh, you know, we changed a lot of our processes. Um, and, and really emphasize process over outcome. So it was great for us to, um, you know, for our players in particular to see that, you know, some of the changes that we did make um, did lead to um, a result that we were all, you know, very satisfied with and, uh, you know, made this week's week of practice, I think, even even that much more spirited. Yeah, it's, it was interesting to kind of in the wake of that game to hear Cal talking about, hey, you, you know, Colorado had guys that had never played certain positions, personnel changes, scheme changes. Um, you know, obviously some of that is intentional, but just the energy in general, like when you come in, like you had a meeting with your players, I think, on the field before the game. What what did you want to accomplish with that? Like nobody had ever seen that before. Uh, you know, I, I just wanted us to, uh, to to go down. You know, we have a buff walk, a, a really nice, you know, good tradition here in Boulder. And, you know, I'd never been on it because the, the assistants go straight to recruiting, you know, from uh, the team hotel. Um, and I wanted all of our staff, uh, players, you know, support staff to be on that buff walk together. And instead of it being a little bit anticlimactic and just go straight into the locker room, I wanted there to be a you know, point in time where we gather on the field and, and you know, we start to visualize uh, and believe and trust in what we have prepared to do. Um, you know, and I, I wanted to set the tone and set the stage for, you know, for what we were going to do on that given day. And um, we had a, we, I really believe we have the best creative uh, team in, in all college football. We just incredible gifts. Uh, and I wanted to utilize some of their gifts and that's making out just a quick little highlight for us to just, you know, see the images of what we've already done on the season, how we practice the last two weeks, 
Um, and just to, you know, give our players, because I really do think that this, this generation, um, you know, they, they get a lot of their confidence from social media and, and visuals. Um, and so I wanted them to see themselves making those plays and visualize themselves doing it on Saturday uh, on that particular field as we watch that tape. For people who don't know, Mike Sanford has been around football for most of his life. Uh, you go back, like even in your career, like you've been all over from, you know, Minnesota, Utah State, Western Kentucky, your alma mater, Boise State, Notre Dame. But you were at Stanford for a while. And then let's go back to your dad, who was the head coach at UNLV. What is it, what is it like growing up in a football family? And now you got you got kids of your own, two sons of your own and a daughter who are watching dad do the same damn thing. <laughs> you know, it's, it was, uh, that was another reason that, that Saturday at Folsom was so special for me. My, my dad, you know, boarded a, a, like a 5 a.m. flight read, coached the high school game. He's 67 years old, um, and he can't get it out of his uh, system, you know, the game of football and coaching. So um, he's the head coach at Faith Lutheran High School in Las Vegas in Summerlin area. Um, and he was on an early morning flight. My mom came up. You know, they, we've all been through a lot, you know, in the game of football. And, you know, he showed me to do things the right way, um, which is always make it about the players, not yourself. And it was an emotional time. My wife and, and three kids were on the field, my mom and dad. I looked over at my mom during, uh, you know, everybody was rushing the field. My mom couldn't stop crying, like, for an hour. Uh, I was like, Mom, it's okay. She's like, no, I'm just so happy for you. I'm like, just, it's okay. We, you know, we're, let's enjoy it. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's there's been a lot of moves. Um, but, but I think with that, I think my, even my own children, my, my daughter's 12, she's made, she's moved nine times. Um, by the time she was four years old, had lived in all four time zones in the United States. Um, you know, so there's a lot of things that are unique about the life of being a coach's kid. But uh, I think it, if, if you choose to make um, make the best out of it, I, I think it makes you a really well-rounded person. And for me in particular, not just as a, as a son of a coach, but also now in my own journey, you know, there's a lot of downsides to as many times as I've moved. Um, but there are a lot of positives, too. I mean, even putting some ideas together for, for how we practice, for how we travel, um, a lot of those are, come from the experiences of being around, you know, P.J. Fleck, Jim Harbaugh, uh, Brian Harson, Brian Kelly, um, you know, just to name a few, David Shaw. Um, those are guys that, that were mentors to me, and I was learning by osmosis. And when my opportunity came, you know, two weeks ago, I said, I'm going to give these players everything that I have from all the experience and wisdom that I've obtained over the years. We're talking to Mike Sanford. He is the interim coach at Colorado. What What do you want to get out of this season? Because, you know, it's it's never good. You see a coach dismissed and a change. But sometimes, you know, in, you know, Washington State's a great example. The interim coach comes in, catches lightning in a bottle, galvanizes the program. You know, what's your mission, short term, long term, with this season? Well, you know, I I think I've said it so many times, and and I I have to remind myself about this because. If you make it about anything other than the players, then it starts becoming self-centered. And what I've seen in my experience in my years is when a, when the leader of the program is, is looking out for themselves over those three, um, you know, players can see right through that. Um, so I, I think that's exactly what I'm going to be doing for these next six games is just continue to pour everything I have into these players, um, galvanize our staff to do the same. Um, and, you know, as many unknowns and uncertainties as there are for us personally, um, I just want to make this thing fully about putting them in, in the best place that they can experience those moments like Saturday at Folsom Field. And, um, you know, in, in this, this season and over, those those three non-conference preseason quote-unquote losses that we have, they don't count anymore. You know, and, and the thing that people don't want to look at, they see us as one and five. You know, right now we're one and two in the conference. 
Um, you know, and it sounds insane, but we're we're in seventh place out of ten out of twelve teams in the Pac-12. Um, you know, we have a lot to play for, um, and and frankly, we haven't been eliminated from anything. Um, so we're just going to take it one game at a time. We just have to be the better team um, each Saturday. We don't have to be the best team in the conference. I don't think anybody in, in the landscape of college football thinks that we're the best in the Pac-12. Um, but we just have to prepare uh, and have the mindset that we, we, we can win ball games if we're the better team just on that particular Saturday. And, and I think we showed that on, on last Saturday against Cal. How do you transition from being the offensive coordinator and quarterback guy I know you've coached every position on offense. You know, when when you're the quarterback guy, how do you transition from that role into interim head coach? And how much do you, during practice and individual time, do you just regress to, hey, I need to be the position coach right now in this in this next fifteen or twenty minutes? Well, you know, there's so many different experiences that um, that I learned from. You know, uh, individual, you know, isolated experience from being a head coach before. Um, that, you know, frankly, I think the transition has been so much easier than the first time I, I had that opportunity to be a head coach um, because I was 33 years old. Uh, I, was, I wasn't ready, um, and, and I learned from my mistakes, from my failings, and, and those failings turned into growth. Um, and, and so really now I'm, I'm just looking out for, you know, 116 players on a roster, um, the staff, and, uh, you know, there's certainly things. I, I sit in the quarterback meeting room a whole heck of a lot more, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sit, you know, I'm going to stand next to quarterback Indy, but, you know, I, I'm also seeing the value of, of being everywhere on the practice field um, and bringing my energy, bringing my passion to each position on the field. And, and that's one area uh, I learned from Western Kentucky. I, I got a little too heavy with the quarterbacks in my second year. And I think some of the, uh, just the overall management of the team um, and them feeling connected to me and, and really feeling my energy really fell off. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm learning from that mistake, and, and I'm really really around every position and around the defense and around the offense during practice and in game. And I'm going to continue to do that because, once again, I made this about our players, not just um, about myself or not just about the quarterback position, but about all 116 players in this roster. Help us out with Oregon State because, especially on the defensive side of the ball, I'll have you step into offensive coordinator role now. When you look at film, what do you see at Oregon State uh, you know, aside from, you know, they've got great experience. They, they have some depth and experience. But what do you see on film when you look at them? Physicality. Um, you know, I think they've, uh, I think Jonathan's done a really good job with, uh, you know, just developing an identity of being a physical football team. Um, and what I learned from my time at Stanford is, you know, when you're offensive to get into traditional I formation football with two, three tight ends and fullback on the field at any given time, anywhere on the field, um, that has uh, benefits for your entire football program and really your defense. Um, you know, you have to fit runs physically and practice, you know, nine months out of the year um, between spring ball and fall camp. And, you know, I, I, that's one thing that I, I learned from Jim Harbaugh at Stanford and David Shaw is just the importance of, uh, of, of developing your, an identity on offense to really help your defense become the most physical version that they can be. Um, you know, I think that, you know, if you look at the conference right now, you know, uh, Oregon State's really kind of cornered the market of just pure physicality. Um, and so I see that on tape. It shows up in all three phases. Um, we got to put our big boy pads on, you know, to, to go um, find a way to, to compete and win this football game. Um, that's going to be a key for us. Home field advantage in this conference feels like it's bigger than like three points. It feels like it's seven to ten. What goes on in your mind when uh, a Pac-12 team is traveling to another Pac-12 venue? You've done it for years at Stanford and and now at Colorado? Well, you know, there's a couple things I've talked with our team about this week. I mean, one of them is, 
you know, it just stating the facts. I mean, this is we have an opportunity to do something that hasn't been done here in three years. Um, I believe that the last um, Colorado uh, road Pac-12 or really any non-conference or conference road victory in front of fans was in 2019. Uh, I believe it was Arizona State. It was either in September or October. So that's a that's a pretty long, um, you know, layoff in terms of, of finding a way to win on the road. Um, you know, we've we've changed some of our preparation for how we travel. Um, what we're doing at the team hotel, um, you know, doing more physical, um, you know, kind of, uh, you, you know, the trip up to Corvallis is such a unique one. I've done it a lot with my time at Stanford, even at Boise State. You know, there's no easy way to get to Corvallis, as we all know. You know, if you look at it, I mean, from today, we're going to leave here, uh, you know, and, and, and go from Boulder and drive to DIA. Um, that's a 45-minute uh, drive in a bus for traffic. Um, you were the flights two and a half hours. Add thirty, that's three, and then another bus ride. We're staying in Salem from you know from Eugene to Salem, uh, and then another bus ride. That's a lot of sitting down uh, inactivity. Uh, and one of my beliefs is that motion is lotion. Um, you know, and so for your body, I think it's important to move. Um, so we're going to get off the tarmac. Uh, we're going to get onto the tarmac off the plane, and we're going to do some mobility work right when we land. Uh, we're going to do some pool workouts as a team. Um, these are things that I've picked up over the years um, that I've seen teams that have done really well um, that I've been a part of on the road. And I think some of it's just dealing with the physical attributes of traveling and, you know, unlocking your hips, your hamstrings, your quads. Because when you sit on a bus for a long time, I mean, even myself, I'm 40, you know, I, I get up and I feel, you know, I barely walk. Um, you know, so let alone these athletes that are going to be expected to run four four forties and cover, you know, and, and make plays and, and all those things. So um, we're just finding any any possible edge that we can give our players that they know they have the best chance to, uh, to have confidence going into that game. Hey, I need to unlock my hips and my quads too when I travel. I I, I need a I need a user guide for that. We'll, we'll, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll send you one, John. Yeah, thank we'll, you. Uh, I'll, I'll have uh, Terry or Strange yeah. send you one. So, yeah. but it's been fun. It, it has been fun just um, for us. You know, there's been a lot of changes. I mean, there's – and a lot of those changes, uh, to, to the point earlier that we made, is, you know, these are things that I've learned, you know, and, and I didn't come up with it. But um, sometimes the, the biggest form of flattery is plagiarism. And, um, you know, I'm not I'm not uh, ashamed to, to take the experiences that I've learned from other head coaches that I've worked under and strength coaches that I've worked with. And, you know, we're just trying to find ways to get our guys to be really, really confident and feel, you know, feel the best that they can. All right, so my wife and I are watching uh, this series called The Patient. It's, uh, you know, uh, uh, one of those binge-watching shows, and then we're watching The Old Man. What's your guilty pleasure, Mike Sanford? Help us get to know you a little bit. What do you do that's not related to football? Yeah, you know, it's funny. My wife and I try to get into the series, and uh, it's amazing the amount of of series that we've watched. And my wife, you know, she gets mad at me because, you know, we work so many hours, even in the off-season. Yeah. We'll start a series and she'll look over and 20 minutes into the end of this episode, I'm asleep. Um, so that, that's a challenge. Um, you know, I pour a lot into these players and all that. But, um, you know, the one thing that I do love and I've always loved, and um, I didn't tell Chris Peterson, my uh, my position coach in college, very much. But um, when I was playing at Boise State, I had a season pass to Bogey Space and Ski Resort. Um, and I, I would go 25, 30 times a year during uh, during my college time at Boise State. And uh, even now I got the Epic Pass and, you know, anytime I can get up into the mountains, uh, I love snowboarding. Um, even with my torn meniscus, it's still uh, one of my definite guilty pleasures. My uh, and certainly we're in the best place in the country for that now. So, um, you know, irregardless of anything that happens, um, there's uh, for sure at the end of this season, uh, I'm going to find myself up at Breckenridge or Vail. 
uh, with my family and uh, definitely be up there on the slopes uh, getting in some fresh pow. Now you grew like you grew up more or less in Seal Beach, California, and you went to yeah. La- Los Alamitos High School in California. So, so where did you get the snowboard ski thing? What was your first exposure to it? You know, it's funny. I was uh, always a you know just a great coach's kid. Was on the sidelines at SC. You know, when my dad's coaching at USC yeah. and um, a lot of the roles I had. I was the ball boy, and before that, I held Larry Smith and John Robinson's, uh, you know, cords uh, on their headsets. Um, <laughs> but I, I went through that rebellious kind of kind of middle school era of uh, being the skater, um, you know, surfer, you know, h- hanging out on the south side of the Seal Beach Pier. Um, and then kind of with that, you know, when it's wintertime, you know, everybody gets up to, you know, Big Bear and Snow Summit. And that's where I kind of developed that love for snowboarding. And, um, you know, I found that, that I actually enjoy being on the mountain even more than being in the ocean. So um, it's just – and then when I when I got to Boise State, it was just – it was on. And uh, ironically, Andy Avalos, the head coach now at Boise State, and I were in the same class. And there was a group of about five, six of us that went up all the time together. And we didn't tell our coaches very much about how much we were <laughs> up there snowboarding and getting in half pipes and getting out big jumps. But – we never had any injuries, so um, just got to continue to knock on wood every time I go up there. I think, you know, I look, I've done both. I have my own answer, but you tell me. What's harder for somebody who's never done either, learning to snowboard or learning to surf? Ooh, surfing. Yeah, <laughs> surfing's tough. Agreed. Like, uh, it's fun. So, like, I was a bodyboarder, um, so more of a sponge type, and, and uh, I didn't have the, t- the time commitment, you know, as an athlete to, to get into the surfing as much. So, um, you know, if you want to just kind of pull around and get on the shore break and all that stuff, I think getting on a little boogie board is the way to go. But snowboarding, you take one or two lessons, you're, you're rolling. So yeah. um, I think it's a whole heck of a lot easier. Yeah, I tried uh, – I took one surf lesson. It was the hardest damn thing I've ever done. Like, you know, yeah, I'm it's like... hard, man. <laughs> Even to pa- just paddling out. Yes. Just, like, like the great thing about snowboarding is you get on a chair and, and at least that you know you're gonna get to the top and yeah. at least you're there it gives you a chance like just to paddle out through breaking you know the, the, all the break i mean it sometimes you, you you quit before you can get out there and have a chance to right away so um not an easy deal all right mike good luck to you on your travel and uh, good luck to you saturday in, in corvallis appreciate you making time for us no i appreciate you too john and thanks for all you do for this conference and uh look forward to, to getting down there to corvallis or up there and uh it's going to be a great, great challenge for us. Thank you, Mike Sanford, Colorado's interim coach. Uh, they will be traveling. Unlock the quads. <laughs> Unlock the hips. I'm going to get that from uh, Colorado State, Colorado's uh, strength and conditioning coach. All right, you got the bald-faced truth. We are locked in on a Friday. Great college football weekend ahead. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Great guests on today's show, I think. Uh, Reese Davis from ESPN, who joined us in the 3 o'clock hour. If you missed that one, Reese came on the show, and, uh, you know, he spit some truth. He spit, uh, he talked about Oregon, and, and uh, you know, I asked him, can Oregon come back from the 49-3 loss in Week 1? And Reese Davis said no, he doesn't think so. He thinks it's an albatross around Oregon's neck. I think that's uh, that's probably too heavy a weight to carry. Uh, to hope for anything more than a Pac-12 championship, which when I say that, I don't mean to diminish that. That is a, that's a major accomplishment to be able to do that and, and go to the Rose Bowl. Sparked a big debate about, uh, you know, what Oregon faces, what Oregon must do, what to make of college football, as long as there's only four teams in the Invitational Tournament. 
Uh, Reese Davis uh, in uh, College Game Day will be live from Eugene tomorrow morning in the run-up to Oregon-UCLA. Big football game, 1230. Uh, also on the show today, Jeff Schwartz, Fox Sports, Sirius XM host, former NFL offensive lineman, former Oregon Duck. He talked about Chip Kelly. He talked about uh, the big game and the juices that are flowing. And I think a lot of eyeballs looking towards the Pac-12 tomorrow is that is the best game in the country. Oregon-UCLA, the most intriguing matchup at least going on. And you heard from Mike Sanford, the Colorado head coach, just in the last segment talking uh, a little bit about uh, the matchup with Oregon State. Uh, what's on tap this weekend? Well, we'll do that. And also we will break down the Pac-12 picks in the final segment. Peter and uh, Stephen and I will do that. But we're going to start with uh, what's on tap this weekend, and we'll start in the college football world. Now it's time for what's on tap and what's on TV at the Independent on the BFT. Well, let's start with UCLA and Oregon, 12:30 on Fox. Number nine UCLA gets number ten Oregon. That's a big game. You'll be watching that one. Arizona State plays Stanford at one o'clock on the Pac-12 networks. Colorado and Oregon State at 5 o'clock, Pac-12 Networks. Washington will go to Cal. That game on ESPN at 7.30. Those are the Pac-12 games of the weekend. In Major League Baseball, of course, uh, over the weekend, we will be talking about uh, the Astros and Yankees. Houston leads the American League Championship Series two games to none. Game three will take place tomorrow on TBS, 2.07 p.m., first pitch as the Astros and Yankees are playing. And then the National League Championship Series Game 4 will take place on Fox at uh, 4.45 p.m. Pacific Time. Uh, NLCS Game 4, San Diego visiting Philadelphia uh, for Game 4. That's uh, going on over the weekend. And, of course, the NFL action, if you are like me, you're interested in what the 49ers are going to look like uh, as they uh, suit up uh, part of the action over the weekend. 49ers uh, will be playing... And uh, uh, home against Kansas City, that game will be at 1.25 p.m. on Fox on Sunday. And, of course, uh, the Monday night football matchup, Chicago, is at New England on ESPN. That's what's on tap. Coming up, we'll break down the Pac-12 games of the weekend. We'll give our final answers for the Pac-12 games. And we'll lead you into the weekend with Peter Sampson and the Pulse. Leave it right here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Peter Sampson and the Pulse are coming up top of the hour. Peter has been along for the ride today. He will keep it going right here on 750 The Game. So if you are interested in what is happening in the world and you got a cold beverage or a warm one, Beside you, Peter Sampson would be happy to have you stick around. Uh, Peter, what do you have on the show coming up? Yeah, I mean, Blazers home opener. We're going to preview that matchup against the Suns. And I want to talk just a little bit about what we saw on opening night. I think there might have been a little bit of fool's gold there. Uh, Certainly was a better game than we were expecting. But I just want to go a little bit deeper into that performance. All right, do it. I like it. Stick around. Peter Sampson coming up top of the hour. We want to talk about these games going on, the Pac-12 games in particular, for those of you interested. UCLA, it is at Oregon, 12.30 p.m. on Fox tomorrow. I am picking the Ducks to win this game. Oregon is favored by six. I think Oregon's going to cover the six. 
I have it Oregon 38, UCLA 31. I'm a little nervous about this game. I'm nervous for Oregon because Chip Kelly's involved. But this is Oregon's second chance to make a first impression. You heard Reese Davis earlier say, hey, they can't get by the 49-3 game in the opener. Um, I suspect Oregon shows up locked in. I know Chip Kelly and that team is good, but they have not played on the road yet. I just think Oregon wins the game. Yeah, uh, you know, I was just looking it up. There's six, six and a half is going up even higher, John. It, I would be surprised if he gets to seven by kickoff, but you never know. Um, I, I agree with you. I think Oregon wins the game, but I think UCLA keeps it close and they stay within the spread. Uh, you know, you talk about home favorites in the Pac-12. I believe it was 30-1 and one on the season. The only loss was Arizona State to Eastern Michigan. I can't picture the Ducks losing this type of big ball game uh, with game day there with how they play at Austin Stadium. So I do like the Ducks. Uh, I will be interesting to see. Uh, I found this stat about the Ducks' third down defense. It's one of the worst in the nation. Mm. Um, and usually it's, you third down offense is one of the best. So Oregon Ducks uh, defense on third down, they're 127th in the nation and giving up first down percentages. UCLA on third down on offense, fourth in the nation in getting the first down. So I think that'll be key. A lot of going forward on third and fourth down for UCLA. Can the Ducks get a couple stops? I think that's the key. Peter, who wins the game? Yeah, I think Oregon wins the game. I've got it just a little bit higher than you. I've got it 42-35. So at six and a half, mm-hmm. the, the Ducks do cover the spread. I think you've got a couple of really fun offenses. Obviously, uh, Zach Charbonnet. The Ducks, not horrible against the run. So that matchup is going to be interesting to see what DTR can do against that secondary. 42-35 Oregon. We have blown this game up on this show. We've talked about it all week long. I've written about it multiple times at johnconzano.com, but I'm a little underwhelmed by what I have seen coming out of the L.A. market and maybe even, you know, in Portland and Eugene. Like, not a lot of – this game is huge. This is 9 versus 10. This is game day. This is it. Like, this is what fans and media and the players and the coaches, this is all – you know, the spotlight is on. And so – I hope this game delivers. I think it will. I think it's going to be a great game. Do you think, Arizona, it, has to, yeah, sorry, go do you think it has to do with the Georgia loss still? Like, does that resonate all the way now that it's not getting the publicity we maybe think it could? I just, I think it's, I don't know. But the but the interest is there. Like, I, I, I'll just say this. I wrote twice about this game this week. I wrote about Chip Kelly yesterday after he made the phone call to me. People want to read it. You can go to johnconzano.com and you can read that. The numbers on what I'm writing on this game are off the charts. Like, there's obvious interest there. There's more people than ever reading me, and they're reading about this game. So the interest is there. I just wonder if, like, you know, if maybe people have forgotten how to, like, focus on a game. Like, this this is a big game, and people are into it. But I just not – I'm not hearing the normal buzz. Like, the LA Times – you know, maybe it's because they're focused on the Dodgers and the Padres and the Chargers and other things. Like, you know, Ben Bolch of the LA Times is the is writing about it, but I haven't seen anything else uh, coming out of you know either either market. So I don't know. And part of it is the Eugene Register Guard is just I think it's fallen off the face of the earth. They're just not covering Oregon football anymore, and it makes me sad. Arizona State's at Stanford, 1 p.m. Pac-12 Network. Stanford last week beat Notre Dame. Stanford's favored by three. This is my upset of the week. And feel free to mock me. But I think Arizona State's going to win this game. I think they're going to win at Stanford. I have it 31-30, Arizona State. I will not mock you. I agree with you. I think this is a perfect spot to fade Stanford coming off the big win over Notre Dame. Uh, I like Arizona State to cover and to win outright. Uh, So, yeah, give me the Sun Devils in Stanford. I I think I'm going with the Cardinal. It's going to be a close game. I'm giving it 28-24. It's a couple uh, pretty poor rush defenses, running defenses. So I think it's not going to be a super high scoring game. A lot of grinding it out on the ground, but I like Stanford to get it done.
Colorado at Oregon State, 5 o'clock, Pac-12 Networks. Uh, you heard from Mike Sanford, the Colorado coach, uh, just a bit ago. Jonathan Smith was on Wednesday's show. So I think I have a, a good assessment of what's going to happen in this game. Oregon State's a 24-point favorite. I like Oregon State at home. They've just been a different team at home than they are on the road. They're 8-1 and one on their last nine at Reeser Stadium. Only loss was that three-point loss to USC. I have it 34-7. Oregon State wins. Oregon State covers. Man, this is the game I've been flip-flopping all week. You know, I originally I liked Colorado early in the week, and then I liked Oregon State. And then hearing Mike Sanford talk, like I just loved what he had to say and how he came across in that interview with you. Uh, but I still think, you know, I'm going to take the Beavs as my final answer. I think laying the points. The problem with the Colorado uh, game is how are the Buffaloes going to score? We've yeah. seen Oregon State's defense so good at Research Stadium, uh, averaging giving up, I believe, 13 points a game at home. How does Colorado score two touchdowns? I think that's what they got to do to cover the spread. So I don't think they can do that when Oregon State gave up two touchdowns to USC. So I think the now, Beavs... what changed for you earlier in the week? You you thought you know th that Oregon State would win, but they would not cover. Yeah. Now you're now you you not you're not seeing the points. I, I'm not. Yeah. I just I think um I think with Gobranson, I think they're gonna try to give him some confidence, right? And you talked about this earlier. Maybe taking some shots down the field. I don't know that Colorado's defense is gonna be ready for it. At first, I thought maybe Oregon State was gonna run it, pound it down the ground, and not even try to you know just kind of get in and get out with the game. But I think they're gonna give. Go Branson an opportunity or two to throw the ball down the field, and I think it may connect. Uh, and then just digging into that defense a little bit more and seeing how good they are at home and just talking to people about it, I just don't know how Colorado scores. Yeah, I, I completely uh, agree uh, with virtually all that. John, I'm almost right on with your score. I've got it 34 to 10. I think the Buffalo sneak in a field goal, but I think this is the game to get Goldbrands in a uh, little rhythm, take a few shots because if it doesn't work, the Buffaloes have been brutal. Allowing they're, they're giving up something like 260 yards a game on the ground. Yeah. So if it doesn't work, you just run all over them. 34 to 10 beefs. I kind of, the only wonder or only worry I have here is the weather five o'clock on Saturday, at what point does the weather kind of turn sideways on both teams? And could it, could it inhibit Oregon state's ability to score points? And like, you know, maybe Oregon state wins 28, 10, uh, but they don't cover in that, you know, under that scenario. So that's my only pause there. 24 points is a lot of points, but I just, I think Colorado might get shut out in this game. I, I got them down for seven points, but I won't be surprised if Oregon state pitches a shutout. Washington's at Cal, 7.30 ESPN. Uh, I have no idea what to do with Cal, so I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on this one. I just like Washington's passing offense. I don't think Cal can stop them. Washington's favored by 7.5. I think they cover it. I have it 34-24, Washington at Cal. Yeah, this game is confusing. Let me just pull out a coin and flip it, and then I'll, I'll give you your pick here. But, I mean, this seems like a Wilcox spot to come back and cover, you know, beat a double-digit road favorite against Colorado and lose. Now you're a, over a touchdown uh, home dog to Washington. Seems like a spot Wilcox can you know cover, but I just I don't have trust in Cal. I'm with you. I think I'm going to lean Washington uh, laying the points on this one, but I, I don't feel good at all about it. I'm with you with Cal. I, I have no idea. This is a literal coin flip. I could see Cal winning this game. I could see Washington just blowing them out. It could go either way. Yeah, I mean, this is such a tough game to call. I've got Washington uh, covering this one 34-24. It's definitely the one I feel the least confident about. I mean, what can you say about Michael Penix? But, I mean, Cal does have a pretty good defense. They might disrupt him a little bit, but he's, they just have too much. He's going to get it done. I I, uh, I don't like betting on bad teams, but I force myself to pick every game. 
But I was four and one against the spread last week. And if I keep that going, I might quit this show and I might just go right to Vegas <laughs> and stay right there. You know, like now I'll go one and four. I'll be I'll be your runner. <laughs> I'll run back and forth at the casinos yeah. and you know make the bets for you. And I had a bad week. Like okay, so against the spread I was four and one, but straight up I was three and two. Explain that to me. Like I was I was on fire with just picking the winners, but last week uh, you know I missed the I missed Utah. I had Utah covering against uh, USC and Utah only won by a point. So that was my lone loss last week. And but uh, you know I, at what point? What point can I legitimately say I might have a future in this? What what does my percent win percentage need to be at, Stephen? Well, I think you answered your question of what happened is you're just smarter than the casinos, <laughs> right? You're just smarter than the books. That's why you went four and one against the spread, three and two straight up. But yeah. no, I think uh, I mean legitimately, I think you probably got to get about fifty five percent. Okay, I'm uh, I'm, tw- have, I'm twenty nine and twenty five against the spread. That's not good enough. Yeah, then you got to you know make sure you're you're okay enough betting enough money to win. So then when you're you know barely pulling fifty five fifty four percent, it's a good enough money to survive. I'm probably doing better where I am. I just need to stay right here. Uh, Peter, you got the pulse coming up. Um, you're uh, obviously going to get into the Blazers. Um, the re- big takeaways. Bill Platchkey, the LA Times, wrote a column today saying that the Lakers must trade Russell Westbrook. Is there a market, guys, for Russell Westbrook? $40 million a year for 0 for 11 from the field? Oh, yeah, I'm sure teams are lining up for him. I mean, if you can, if some team is just trying to tank and you can uh, maybe uh, send him your way in exchange for something else, you know, so they can clear their books a little bit, you do it. But I think they're stuck with him. The thing about it is, is, and I know he's, I don't, this is what he's supposed to say, but after the game, they asked how he played, and he said, I played solid, I played well. And it's like, you know, you shot 0 for 11. Like, I understand. Like, you can't come out and say, yeah, I played terrible. That's a bad look. But at the same time, let's let's acknowledge that you went 0 for 11, right? Like, what, I, yeah, but shouldn't he? Wouldn't it be better if he came out and he said, look, I got to be better than that. I can't be 0 for 11. I kind of think so, right? Like, maybe I'm in the wrong here, but it just, it's a, it's a weird look. Like, he's feel I feel like he's the only one that doesn't realize how bad he's been. Uh, he knows. Don't you think he knows? But that's just partly like kind of the NBA mentality. And it's not me. I'm not the problem, you know? It's where I'm getting the ball. It's the flow of the game. I've heard players. Yeah, yeah, I've heard players complain. I'm not touching the ball enough, so that when the ball comes to me and I'm go to shoot, I haven't touched the ball enough. And I'm like, that's your job, you know? It's like that would be like you going, hey, when you come to me, I'm I'm not quite ready. You need to come to me more. He also said that he hurt his (laughs) hamstring because he came off the bench. So I don't nonsense. I don't know what to believe. I hurt my hamstring watching him shoot. That that's that's a bad one. (laughs) Peter Sampson's coming up. In the pulse. I want you to uh, make sure that you're here with us on Monday. We'll have all the fallout. If you want to read me over the weekend, we'll have photographers shooting Oregon and Oregon State games at johnconzano.com. I'll have a column off the Oregon UCLA game. We're going to have a lot of fun this weekend. Just leave it here for Peter Sampson in the pulse. Here.